Hey everybody, welcome to this Board Game Life episode number 25, titled Gaming, Blogging, and Podcasting, recorded on Sunday, February 10, 2013. This is the show where we talk about the board gaming life, including board games, the people that play them, and who knows what else. So for today's show, uh, we'll have a whole bunch of great stuff lined up for you, including uh, a ton of gaming talk about all these different board games. Uh, There's a special interview with Philip DuBerry, where we talk about uh, all the games that he's designed over the years, including his new family vacation game that he's getting out on Kickstarter uh, real soon now. And let me introduce to you our guest host for this show. He's extremely uh, well-known in the BGG community uh, with his awesome blog. It's one that I've been following pretty regularly over uh, the course of the past couple of years through the magic of RSS. He's got uh, some really great session reports, great photos uh, that he posts up on his blog, reviews, gift guides, and a podcast that he started uh, last year. We've read around the time that this board game life started. So uh, let me introduce to you Chris Norwood, also known as Gamer Chris. Well, howdy. How are you doing today? Fantastic. I'm so like flattered. That's just an, a great introduction. I appreciate that. So, And actually, hey. I started a little bit after you. That's one of the reasons um, I sort of listened to your show. And, and uh, uh, that was one of the, the final straws that helped push me over to uh, go ahead and jump into it as well. So. Here I am. Yay. Yay. And I mean, with the amount of content that you put out, I mean, the blog, you know, all of the reviews and the session reports, I mean, oh, I can't even imagine the amount of time that some of that stuff takes to, you know, <laughs> put together. And, you know, the, the podcast is like the icing on the cake. And, you know, it's something that I've listened to, uh, you know, uh, all of the episodes so far. And I just love them, you know, along with everything else. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, um, uh, I, I think the real reason there were a lot of reasons I started the podcast, but you know I, I've been doing the blog now for nearly six years, yep. and um, and it's I do the session reports real well and, and a number of other things um, you know, pretty strongly and pretty quickly. But reviews have always been my big bugaboo almost that um, I spend way too much time writing reviews, and so um, I figure I can actually talk about them faster than I can write about them. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And so that's that's the main sort of thought behind the the podcast was to be able to uh, get those things out there because I really don't, I probably spend less time editing a podcast than I do writing a review, um, which is maybe a little bit backwards for some people, but it makes more sense to me anyway. So, well, absolutely. It, it's just surprising the amount of time because, you know, I haven't done too many reviews, at least written reviews. And it just, I find I'm so hard on myself in terms of the content that I put there. I just keep going over it and over it and over it and rewriting. Do you you find yourself doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a real bad, um, I I have to make myself not edit as I go because if I do, I'll I'll constantly be stopping in the middle and backing up and rewriting sentences and things. And um, so that's, for me, it's just much better to talk about it. And if I really make a total fool of myself, I can start over, but um, that's still quicker than some of the things I do for, for a written review. I also put a lot of pressure on myself. I think about reviews. Um, I've written some pretty strong opinions about, um, you know, the number of plays you have to have and, and kind of the, the knowledge you need to right, have about a game right. before you review it. And, um, and so I'm, I'm just as hard on myself when I'm writing the review to make sure that I sound good and, and have really have something to offer about it. And that's why I, I wish I had more written reviews to kind of, 
um, show people. But um, but in the end, that's I'm, I'm hoping that I can just increase that content with the podcast. And even your session reports, they're probably the most detailed that I've seen from anybody. I mean, including you know everybody's score and thoughts, and it's it's really nice to know as you know as a reader. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I sort of take that. Those are many reviews. I mean, I don't call them reviews because again, I have this idea that you have to uh, really have a, a well-rounded opinion of a game before you can really review it. But, but I share my thoughts. I'm very transparent about everything that I, you know, encounter with the game and uh, how it went and, and what we thought and all that kind of thing. And, and I've done really good. We really started, um, I, I, before I even started my blog, I used to write some geek lists. Um, basically yeah. monthly I had geek lists for my game group and uh, starting even from then, I trained them all to use these little report sheets that I that I've published. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I mean, it, they they're really compliant with that, and um, so every week uh, I do that. And I last year I kind of fell down with it, but um, I also try to compile some of the data for for us to report just um, you know on the number of games we played each year and which games were our most popular and things like that. So uh, there, there's some benefit they get as well as having the reports they can look back at um, on my blog and stuff. So. Anyway, it's it's really nice that they actually helped me out with that, too. Oh, very cool. You know, like you said, after a while, you tend to forget what you do mm-hmm. or, you know, what games you've played and how you liked it because everything seems to kind of run together, at least it does for me. So, yeah, and I actually had someone ask me not too long ago how I remembered, how I was able to write those kind of, you know, reports. Um, and I think part of it definitely is having the, uh, you know, the report sheet there that at least gives you scores and, and what people thought about it a little bit. And then my pictures help too. Like you mentioned, I've I've sort of fallen in love with with game photography, with digital photography in general. Um, ever since I first got my digital camera, that helps a lot too to be able to see a game 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 state, you know, sort of a, in that picture and, and go from there. But between that two and then just doing it for so long now, you know, you kind of remember more. I think my reports are probably more detailed than uh, they used to be, and I also don't feel like the need to record everything that's happened in the game. I try to focus right. on one or two turning points or special events or maybe my strategy that I tried and how it worked or something like that. So, I think that's what a lot of people are really interested in, in seeing also because, you know, once you get too caught up in the detail, as, you know, I found this out a couple episodes ago where I went into some awful detail, you know, shows and, and you lose people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, people want to hear like the high points. You know, they, they want to hear the interesting things, you know, the things that kind of stand out above everything else and not you know the minutia of, of the gaming yeah plus i think that just the audio the the audio media certainly and even the written media to some extent is not a very good way to teach a game i mean if you go into too much detail about how to play it or you know this and that really details uh, like i said it's just very easy to lose people apparently a lot of people like video like rules teaches and unboxing oh, and crap like that that i don't quite understand what, what the draw is but um but for the audio and written i just don't think it works that well oh absolutely okay you know we'll get uh, a little more into you know the podcasting and and so forth and the blogging uh, later on in the show and then uh you know let's just cover a few quick things and then uh we'll get going sound good excellent all right so um a couple little show announcements and this is kind of the stuff that I cover every show right at the beginning. Uh, make sure to check out uh, thisboardgamelife.com. I'm going to be putting up a little bit more content than I have in the past, and there's been a couple of changes to the website. If you've looked at it recently, you might have noticed. And then uh, to contact the show, you send an email over to contact at thisboardgamelife.com, and there's also a contact form on the site that people have been starting to use. 
we've also got our BGG Guild and Twitter. Twitter is T Board Game Life. That's a thing that I've been using quite regularly, and uh, it's turned out to be a whole lot of fun. Oddly enough, <laughs> how people carry on conversations and post pictures, and you know, I've pretty much shied away from taking pictures of my lunch, so you guys <laughs> will be spared. You know. Yeah, I think for me, Twitter is definitely <laughs> all about games. So if you follow me on Twitter, it's going to be all about board games. But um, but it's, it, it is a great community. I tell you, there, there's a lot of cool people on Twitter. Uh, it's not hard to get into. I mean, it's very easy to find the the board game sort of experts, if you want to call them that. And, and uh, if you have the time to really plug in, but that's the cool thing about Twitter. Even if you don't, you know, you're missing for three days and you can still catch up to some neat little, uh, you know, conversations that are happening. Oh, yeah. And and some of the pictures that people have on there, it's like, ooh, what's that? And I follow some of the people that are designers. So you get mm -hmm. to see, you know, some call it like early release <laughs> information, you know. Uh, it's also interesting to hear like how they source things and just some of the odd conversations on there. Hey, uh, I want to do a quick thing for our feedback attack section. We got a message from John Kleinschmidt, who is one of the co-designers of Mob Ties. Uh, he's responding to a segment that we had back on episode 12, so that was a little while ago. And he just uh, had a couple of notes to send. Uh, and so I thought I'd basically, you know, read it out to you guys so you get a little bit of clarification. Uh, John writes... Thank you for reviewing our game. I do not disagree with your review or initial experience with Mob Ties, especially for a three-player game. As with all games of negotiation, Mob Ties is played, uh, best played with more players to negotiate with. A five-player game is ideal for Mob Ties, and personally, I would not recommend a three-person game, even though it can be played. We added alternative rules for mob ties that are designed to enhance three- and four-player games like the Sicilian, Bodyguards, and Contracts. I hope you give it another shot with more people, uh, but thanks for the review. Uh, sincerely, John Kleinschmidt. Hey, thanks, John, for the uh, clarification. So, you know, those of you that have the opportunity to play mob ties or that have played it, you, know, you definitely might want to check it out with more people because I guess uh, more people means more fun. Have you ever played this game, Chris? I haven't. Um, I, I've checked it out online a few times and, and never come face-to-face -face with it. But it's, it's a little little strange that if it's recommended, like if you can play three, he really doesn't think you should. But, <laughs> um, but still, know, there's definitely games that have the, the ideal number, and I can understand his point there. If you haven't played it with the ideal number, you probably wouldn't have the full picture of it. But you know. Yeah. You know, it's like the games that list you know, solo player, two player on there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you look at the rules and it's, you know, some strange variation or, or whatnot. And, mm -hmm. you know, it just doesn't quite work, you know? Yeah, you can play it, but it's not the same as the more player. I think that's right. the situation with this thing. Because yeah. it's Jeff that played this game. I have not played it myself either. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that was feedback attack. All right. So uh, next thing here, we want to cover a whole bunch of games on the on the table section where uh, we've got a whole slew of games here. This list goes on and on, which is awesome, because, hey, this is a gaming podcast, and, you know, we love talking about the games. So uh, you want to start off, Chris? Um, yeah, let me start with the most recent thing, actually. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I picked up the uh, second edition Merchant of Venus. Uh, they just came out not long ago. Oh, I got yeah. it for Christmas, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's a big old game and, you know, big old Fantasy Flight rulebook and lots of things to punch out. And uh, I think I had two or three different times that we had planned on playing it and it, something fell through. Uh, one time, actually, it was the, the day we had a, a relatively, for North Carolina anyway, a big uh, ice storm and... Um, and so people were afraid of being there too long and all that kind of thing at a game day. So uh, we finally got it to the table at game night last week. And, okay. And we were just, I was blown away. I mean, I, I'd heard really good things about it, obviously, for years and years, enough that there was a rabid fan base to get it republished. Um, but it was really, really good. We played the classic game, which is the one I was really most interested in. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The, uh, just from what I'd heard, the, the Fantasy Flight, the new standard game, is actually more random than the old 1988 version was. Um, right. And plus, of course, that's the one that really made people want to get it back. So I definitely wanted to try the classic version first. Uh, we played a three-player game, and right at three hours, probably could get a little bit faster with, uh, you know, once we have a little bit more experience with it. But it was just a lot of fun. I mean, uh, it kind of has a little bit of everything with exploration and then, you know, the kind of the economic engine building it up and... Um, there's the pick up and deliver, and there's just a lot of elements to it that uh, uh, definitely everybody, all three of us that played it, I think rated an eight or something like that. Um, and so we uh, will be looking back into that and trying to find some more opportunities. Um, have you have you ever played Merchant of Venus any version in, throughout history here? Uh, I've never played the classic version. Uh, that was one that I know Jeff was always like extremely uh, excited about. Of course, Eric Summer, mm-hmm. you know he just raved about that thing and I, I did play the new version and i've also got it myself and mm-hmm. i've never played the classic version but uh the new version i played it at gen con i mean it's just fantastic really and so i'm curious to see after playing the new version a couple of times what i would think of the classic version yeah i think that's kind of what i was going to do is to try to play two or three times with the classic and then then try to learn the standard version the new one and and see what the differences really are and just from listening to the uh, How to Play podcast, I don't know if you listened to that, but um, oh, yeah, when absolutely. Eric Summer was on there with, um, uh, oh, what's his name? <laughs> the host of, of that podcast. Um, they were talking and and basically they, they added a lot more, I think, into the exploration phase where you have to... Jeff? Um, Jeff? Um, no. No. <laughs> anyway, anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I apologize <laughs> to you. <laughs> anyway, yes. um, but... Uh, just with the, um, just like the exploration where there's like pirates and all that kind of stuff, that more things that you can encounter, I guess. Uh, and you have to upgrade your ship more and you can have different pilots and crew and things like that. Whereas basically the only thing you upgrade in the classic version is there are a few different ship models that essentially either come down to how many dice you roll for movement and how many cargo holds you have. And then you can buy um, the different drives for ignoring certain colored spots. So it makes you travel right. faster. Um, exactly. And there, I think there are some shields. You can do shields that, that kind of minimize the uh, the impact of the uh, obstacle spaces that come along. But uh, but again, just as a as a whole unit, it feels a little bit 1988, I guess, just in that sort of game design. But um, but not in a way that was really overly clunky or or um, you know a lot of times they just kind of wear out their welcome. And I would say that yeah. Even though it lasted three hours, we were very involved right to the end. Two of us, literally, I should have won if I hadn't made a mistake. Um, but my, my friend won, and I would have won like another turn or two later um, when I made the next delivery. So it was oh, wow. very tight and interesting, exciting the whole game long. So absolutely a winner for Merchant of Venus for me, anyway. You know, because with this thing, you've got that classic game 
with the fantastic components that, you know, Fantasy Flight is just known for. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's it's just like the best of all worlds. And the fact that you can, you know, play the new version too, which is updated and, you know, some people don't like it, but hey. Absolutely. Whatever. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's sort of like a, I had bagged everything up and about halfway through, I'm like, yeah, I really need to get some uh, Plano boxes for this. Just, you know, I, it was sort of the, yeah. is it Plano worthy? You know, am I going to really be able to, it is. Need to invest in? And I think it certainly is. Uh, absolutely. So. so let me ask you this. Most people would have, like my side has everything in the Plano for the new game. And then all of the classic components are in their own little Ziploc bag and all just kind of just crammed in there, there together. Mm-hmm. Would you be the opposite? As of right <laughs> Where now, you would... yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, you know, they like recommend that you put all of the different race stuff, like line it up next to the board and we're like, why in the world would you ever do that? We just kind of left them in their little plastic bags until we discovered them. But anyway, I think you yes. could, there's a lot of organization you could do to make all that kind of quicker. But, um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, Merchant of Venus you know, where has it been all my life? That kind of thing. (laughs) It's a fantastic game. There's a, Oh, what was his name? There's a guy that does some videos on YouTube on how to play. Mm -hmm. Um, Ricky Royal is his name. It's a a British guy. Mm -hmm. He did a fantastic play of this thing. He played the solo version and uh, it was a series of videos, a couple of them. And he had the same thing where, you know, all of his pieces were not lined up along the left side. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was in bags, and you kind of brought things out as needed. You know, so I would imagine that that would really, really shorten the setup time on this game. Yeah, because it really, I mean, it's not a very complicated game. Um, there are a lot of pieces. No. There's a lot of little things you can do. Um, but for the most part, I mean, you're basically roll your dice to move. Well, you Sorry, you determine your direction. You roll your dice to move. And then you kind of go, and if you land at a, um, a planet or stop at a space station, you can buy and sell. And, and that's kind of it. I mean, um, yep. the, uh, the Ryan Sturm is his name, by the way. The, the, um, oh, Ryan. <laughs> Ryan Sturm, yeah. He's the, um, the podcaster there on how to, how to play. But uh, yes. he kept going on and on about the, uh, the cup where you pull the, the different uh, goods and things out of the cup. So every time you sell something, you pull something out of the cup. And part of that might be that's the only way to get goods back into the game that have been delivered. It's also how you get these demand tokens um, that go to different places that basically increase the value to deliver uh, a good to that particular location. And then you also have passengers that just sort of float around that you know, want to be picked up one place and delivered somewhere else. And I definitely have to agree that that is an extremely interesting little mechanic because um, you never know exactly what's going to happen. It can, just the impact of having those demand tokens piling up on one location. I think we had three of them on one location at one point, um, and that was one of the, you know, one of the things that sort of helped lead to um, uh, to my friend winning is that he was able to deliver a couple of goods in the same turn. There, um, the first of which they were actually cumulative. So I think it was plus forty was the value in, uh, for each one of those chits. And so the first one he delivered at like plus eighty, and then plus forty, and he was still getting wow. a regular payout for it, and um, just. Again, so extremely interesting. I definitely want to play it again. I'm going to probably do some massive review on it when I feel more comfortable, but definitely excited right now. There's been a little bit of talk about the solo play version, kind of, you know, some people enjoy it, some people hate it. Did you look into that at all? I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I haven't. Not really. No. no. <laughs> just, you know, because uh, when Ricky did his video of it, 
of this whole play. It seems like there's just what four goals that you get and you need to just accomplish mm-hmm. those goals. Like, you know, have, you know, a certain amount of money when you go to a particular spot or uh, et cetera. It just, uh, I haven't played the solo play version myself. I was just kind of wondering if it's almost worth it. I, I can <laughs> see it being, um, a good way to learn the game, maybe, you know, to really, uh, yeah. as a lot of times, some, some people like to set it up and sort of play through a few turns and, and that's essentially what you'd be doing. I think it would also be probably a good way to practice at the game if you wanted to try to get better and more efficient with it. But, uh, but oh, yeah, again, yes. like you said, sometimes when you're adapting rules to, to try to make a solo game out of it, it's not quite as compelling to me as a game that's really designed to be solo or, or, or a cooperative game that seems to, you know, flow over a little bit easier. Okay. Then, uh, another game that I want to talk about real quick here that I've been playing a whole lot is Ginkgopolis. I think I said that right. Does that sound right? Ginkgopolis. Ginkgopolis. Well, I guess when stuff's translated from another language, it's up for interpretation. I think in this case, it's just you have this crazy theme and they tried to make a name out of it. So anyway. (laughs) Yes. Not really quite sure. You know, maybe uh, that uh, Xavier George's is a health nut or whatnot. Or he takes his uh, ginkgo pills. Ginkgo mm-hmm. what, biloba? Bilboa? Anyway, okay. Where is this show going? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, I didn't take my ginkgo biloba. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So um, uh, Ginkopolis is one that was on my game list, uh, I think, last episode of the episode before, but I've had a chance to play with or play it with a whole bunch of people. I've played it with uh, two and four players, and this game is a lot of fun. It's a heavily abstract game, I think, with a theme that's pasted on, you know, kind of an odd theme, but, you know, regardless, this thing's awesome, and the gameplay is good with all the different player levels or player counts that I've played it so far. And it's it's just fantastic. I, I just can't stop raving about it. And, uh, you know, if we could play it on Skype right now, <laughs> I'd be like, come on, Chris, let's play. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just such an interesting game. It's, you know, kind of labeled as a city-building game. Have, have you heard that? Yeah, and I think that especially that part of the theme itself works. That makes a lot more sense than the whole Ginkgo Biloba thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so generally yes. it's it's a city-building game for, for what that matters. Yeah, and and it's a fun city building game. You know, a lot of people have talked about how, you know, they've been comparing this thing with what are uh, what are the other ones? Urbanization and uh, oh, that one that was on Kickstarter a while ago. Suburbia. I can't think of it. No, okay. not Suburbia. It's from last year. Oh, was, Sunrise was, City. Was, Sunrise yeah. City. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some. See, I should have taken. Mm-hmm. I should have taken my ginkgo biloba mm-hmm. also. <laughs> so. Uh, this game is, is just a blast because it has a number of different mechanics. I mean, it comes with these fantastic tiles, which are nice and thick. It comes with cards and a lot of wooden tokens. The components are just fantastic in the game. And I've always been a component person. And also, you know, once you take everything out of their little sheets, it does fit back in the box which is a beautiful thing because some games don't do that so well or, you know, it kind of just rattles around in the box. You know, basically what you wind up doing this game in this game, if you haven't seen or heard anything about it yet, is you are working with a, 
a set of tiles, a three by three set of tiles in the center of the game, and it's surrounded by letters, which is another interesting uh, mechanism. And you have the option with these cards to build on top of existing tiles or to spread the city out. And you have these cards in the beginning of the game, which uh, you start off with, which give you benefits based on, you know, building up or out or using resources. So these cards that you get will be, you know, that will influence your gameplay if you're playing, I guess, properly, because... You know, with the cards that you start off with, it might make more sense to build out than to up. And I've been on the wrong side of that a couple of times where, you know, you just get these cards and all you can really do is build up or you get these tiles uh, that, you know, force you to build up, but you're not getting any benefit from it or very little benefit or not as much benefit as you could. So, you know, it's it's just kind of interesting where the the direction that you take isn't necessarily always the most um, the best one for you uh, gameplay wise, but you kind of get stuck. Did you, have you ever seen that? Yeah, I think that's that's it? one of the things about the game is that um, you're, you're always having to balance between increasing your presence in the city, which is the the end result. I mean, you're trying to it's it's an area right. control sort of thing at the end of the game. Um, but you also have to keep gaining more resources throughout the game, whether that's the tiles or the, the actual resources they call them to be able to claim buildings and all. And so sometimes you find yourself either because you just need to take a turn just to build up resources or because um, of the actions sort of that are dealt to you um, that you have to just make the best of what you got, which may be, you know, just getting a, an extra building tile or a resource or two this turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than being able to really advance your strategy if if you want to think of it that way. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's been a couple of times, you know, where I'll be taking, like, move after move, and you're really just trying to get resources to be able to make those good mm-hmm. moves. And then, you know, everybody else is, like, continuing on, and I felt kind of stagnant in, in some respects with that. But in the end, it's still an awesome game. You know, that area control mechanism that you mentioned uh which is basically how many tiles you control because you leave your little markers on the board. That's uh, that's a interesting way to score points at the end of the game. I found myself at some points not paying attention to that too much. You know, it's it's something that you really have to balance. And I think that after a few plays, that's where you can get really good at this game. And, you know, the first couple of games, it's something that I didn't really pay attention to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you remember it once in a while, you know, because uh, you're like, oh, yeah, I see all these other ones, you know, over here, you know, that are my color. You know, let me just build onto this one. So, you know, I'll boost it up by one or two. It's interesting, like all the stuff that he's combined. And it's been sort of polarizing, I think. That's that's what I've more than anything. Some people really, really like yeah. it. I definitely had a lot of good mm-hmm. buzz coming out of Essen last year and all. And, oh, um, for sure. But then there's a lot of things in it that introduce randomness or chaos or whatever you want to call it. Just a lot of unpredictability. Um, obviously, you have card draws and you have tile draws um, for both of those different things. And then the fact that you're passing your hand at the end of every single turn um, just kind of really messes with people a little bit. And not so much. It's not that hard to get your head around. It's just that it offends some people or something. The fact that you, you know, you can't, there's no hand management piece. You can't be planning. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do this turn to, you know, to set myself up for this next turn. It's a lot more tactical in that way. I guess that literally the hands you're handed, um, you have to make the best choice you can. 
Um, but at the same time, I think once you've played it three, four, five times, you start to realize that your control doesn't come from the hand management part. It comes from, again, those cards that are face up in front of you that you start the game with or that you get for, for building upwards um, throughout the game. Um, and sort of the, the engine or the chains or the, you know, just the synergy that you build from those kind of things going on, leading then to how you're going to score at the end of the game. So, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Again, this is, and that, this is one of my favorite games um, for this year so far, anyway, for me. Oh, absolutely. And the thing I was going to mention about the hand management is the hand management is a lot easier when you have less players. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, for those of you that don't know, you pass the, your whole hand of four, or actually at that point it's three cards. You pass three cards to the person next to you, and then those cards, you know, eventually make their way around the table. When you have two people, there's a pretty good chance you'll get at least two of those cards mm-hmm. back. You know, when you're playing with four people, <laughs> the chances are slim. You know, just because it goes through a lot more mm-hmm. people. Yeah, I think it's definitely yeah, it's it's one good. of those kind of games. With, with two, it is probably more strategic. That There's more of a real drafting feel of the passing your hand part. With four or five, you're basically just, every turn, you're just looking at the cards in your hand and making the best choice you can. But mm-hmm. but I think it, it's still very interesting. Again, I don't know if we've played all the way up to five, but I know I've played two, three, and four. And it's a very interesting game even if there's slightly different feel between all all those different uh, numbers and i've enjoyed it uh with with all player counts like i think mm-hmm. i mentioned before and uh teaching it is a little odd it's just got some weird rules that people are not used to but uh you know once people play a couple rounds you know everybody can pick it up pretty easily yeah. Yeah, it's definitely um, one of those the, a lot of games are like that or they're easy to play than to teach but the fact that you can use the yeah. cards in two different ways and um and then you have all these kind of bonus powers when you use a certain action and stuff that uh, it's very, to me, it's been very hard to teach, but, but not hard to play at all. And I really like the fact that you actually choose simultaneously um, which action you're going to do that turn. So the game moves very, very quickly lock it in. Um, from turn to turn. You just kind of all look at your hand, you make, you choose your action and then just resolve in turn order. And then you pick a new card. So. Absolutely. Now, what do you think about that game end condition where you run out of tiles if you run out of tiles in the uh, draw stacks, then basically everybody throws tiles back into the pool, per se. They get extra points, and then you continue until the mm-hmm. end again. What do you think about that? I don't think you should let yourself have the idea that you're going to play through the de- through the tiles twice, because it never works out that way. So, one game, we had literally yeah. one or two tiles put back in. Um, so the game was over the same turn that it happened You know, the first round. You know, The first time they ran out, two went in, they were immediately picked up. So... So because of that, I basically think of it as the game's over either when the tiles run out or when one person gets all the resources on the board. And if you happen to get another turn or two out of putting some of those back in, I don't think it has a real significant effect on the game. So uh, it's a little misleading almost when you read the rules like that. Yeah, because when we played it a couple times, the people were like, why are we doing this? Why doesn't the game just end Mm -hmm, now? mm -hmm. I think you could definitely have (laughs) a strategy, though. That's one thing. If you put together, yeah. again, a little engine that drew you lots and lots of tiles, your goal could be to throw back 10 or 12 of those, potentially, I think, if you were to really conserve them, just to get a big pile of points right then. But um, but for the most, the average person playing the game, it's it's not going to be a real significant you know, point, uh, point boost or uh, delay to the game ending. So. Oh, especially on a mm-hmm. first play. So that was uh, Ginkopolis, and uh, you know, like Chris said, it's, it's one of the the coolest games that I've seen uh, 
in the past couple months. Let me go ahead then. I'll, I'll talk about Suburbia, which is another city building game okay. um, that came out that uh, I actually had the chance to play it as a prototype uh, sometime last year. It was pretty Very close cool. to, to the final production, um, and it hasn't changed a whole lot. And, and basically, in the rule structure anyway, it's a very simple game where every turn uh, you have to add something to your little city. And technically, it's all one big city, but they're not really connected. You kind of have your own borough, so it's I kind of like to think about it that, you know, you have this city and we're all growing outwards in one different direction as, as suburbs. And um, so you have to add a new tile and there's a little market. Um, every tile has a base value, plus then its position on the market will add some extra value you have to pay. So the ones at the end are just going to be their core value. But if you wanted to get the brand newest tile that just came up, you're going to have to pay up to, I think, 10 or 12 extra dollars to get that. All right, so it's, it's basically, rule structure-wise, a very simple game. Um, you're just going to be choosing one tile per turn, and you're going to be adding it to your section of the city. Um, and uh, so every tile has its own little value, plus there's a little market. Um, and this is sort of one of those scrolling markets where the, the tile that's been out the longest is going to be the cheapest. It's just going to be its base value. But then if you go further back to the left, the newer tiles, you have to pay, I think, up to 10 or 12 is the max to, to add uh, to get to that tile. So you, you basically... Buy the tile, you put it somewhere in your city, has to connect along. The, what makes the game interesting and adds quite a bit of complexity is the fact that a lot of these tiles uh, then have benefits that key off of the things that could be potentially next to them. It could look for kind of keywords elsewhere in your um, your part of the city, your borough, or actually it could look at tiles all over the entire city, which would mean on other players and their boards and their parts of the city too. It's very simple to play, but then to keep track of those different things can be a little bit burdensome. Um, and I think if you don't really completely understand yeah. what it means when it says every new tile of this type, um, you could miss some potential scoring opportunities and things like that that happen when other people play tiles into their boroughs. It's interesting. Um, I, I really enjoy it. I think it's a, a good design. But at the same time, I think it feels a little bit slow because of that, uh, because there's really nothing much to do on your turn other than to kind of wait to hear if somebody played a tile that keys off one of yours or something like that. But, you know, I, I've enjoyed it. I, I just feel like it, I wish I'd moved just a little bit better, and I think I would enjoy it even even more. But for It has a very strong, I think, sort of SimCity sort of thing. It's a very, very straightforward city-building yeah, sort of game. And so if you like that, and and uh, the game looks really gorgeous, just the tiles, and, and if you kind of stand back, one thing you don't notice at first is that all the roads go the same way, so they sort of line up if you kind of look at the macro view of the whole game. Um, and so that's kind of cool. But there are definitely a lot of strategies. I think I like that, that uh, you know you can pursue one that's a little bit more heavy on the industrial side and, and, and things that work together, synergies from putting together those kind of tiles versus ones that rely more on business and you know increasing your money income or you can work more on things that increase your reputation which brings more people and ultimately whoever has the most people population in their city is the one that is going to win the game uh, so that's you know there's a lot of these little things kind of going on you also have some goals that you try to accomplish at the end of the game that add some bonus right. points so a lot of things to think about um, again i just wish it moved just a little bit better and, and maybe who knows maybe after i have even more experience with it um, it might do that a little bit better, just to be a little bit more smooth in how it you know plays out. So, uh, but I've been happy with it. Did so you? Far. Did you play? Was that your copy, or is it somebody? <laughs> this else's? is another one. Um, I think my wife actually ordered it for Christmas, and it didn't come until a, about a month afterwards. But um, so I own oh, that, yeah. yeah. And that's. Uh, I'm just curious how it was to punch out the tiles because uh, 
my my copy there was a bunch of sheets that oh really <laughs> were not uh oh it was it was pretty rough i don't think i had any it of was the, just pretty um, rough to punch them like the actual building tiles have problems uh some of the money i think i had to be real careful not to tear off but but they are yeah mine was well punched i'd say in general yeah oh that's cool i saw some threads on bgg where people i guess had really really extremely bad Ooh. luck with that just pull out an exacto knife you know just do a little trimming and You'll be okay. And I, from what I hear, too, uh, they've been pretty good about taking care of some of that stuff. Now, have you actually had a chance to play it yet? I've just gone through a little bit of a uh, solo play to kind mm -hmm. of learn the rules a little bit. You know, I could definitely see how paying attention, like, you know, you play a four-person game with this stuff here, how it can be cumbersome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's a good way to put it, to just keep track of everybody else's tiles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and but what surprised me is actually I played a two-player game with my wife as well, and it really takes just about as long as it does to play the full five-player game. Um, really? Because you, you use less tiles, but you're getting more of the tiles, and so therefore you have a bigger individual city, which means you have more things okay. to track personally, you know, those different interactions. On your own. Um, and, and it was our first play, so I think, again, that would go a little bit faster, but it took us an hour and a half to play a two-player game. Um, which is basically 60 to 90 minutes has been every game I've played uh, so far. So anyway, again, interesting. It's a, yeah, I wonder if that'll change with, you know, more repeated plays. I think it definitely could once you knew the tiles and you kind of understood um, which tiles look for different things, you would, you'd probably be able to uh, just have a better handle on that. But, um, but I'm, I'm a little afraid that it's going to be, it's going to feel a little too slow for me to get really people really interested in it. Whereas like Ginkopolis, you know, another person or two has already bought it in the group and I see it played even when I'm not the one bringing it and stuff. But, um, I don't know that suburbia is going to quite grab people the same way. Uh, at least in, in my group anyway. Okay. Uh, next game I want to talk about is uh, betrayal at house on the hill. Have you ever played this? Chris? I have played it many times, but, um, it's many kind times. of to the point now <laughs> where I play it maybe once or twice a year around Halloween. But, um, yeah, 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 this was my first play, and I think it was about a six-person game, mm -hmm. at least six-person, and it was very interesting. It uh, it actually worked out to the point of where I was uh, the betrayer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, do, what do they call that person? The, um, not the I saboteur. Think, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, the traitor or something like that. I, yeah, the traitor. That was it. Yeah, so I, I wound up being the traitor, and it, it was a lot of fun. I had never played a game like this. And uh, the way that they have it set up is, you know, you go through and you build out this house, you kind of explore, and then there's a certain event that happens that triggers, uh, you know, somebody to be the, the traitor. That was me, as luck had it. So I went off into the other room. There's two rules books or whatnot, scenario books. I think, what is it, based on the tile? It's based on, the, on the, or... uh, the omen card that triggered it. Yes, and, yes, um, that's right. And the room you're in, yes. So those are the two things. So which omen and which room kind of cross-reference to tell you which which uh, haunt you're going to use. Yep. So, the, you know, there's a couple of different ways that the game could turn out. And, you know, I had to bring a corpse back to, the, I think it was the chasm uh, at, for my victory condition. And, you know, everybody had to basically come after me. It, it was a lot of fun because I was invincible. Mm-hmm. So I was invincible and, you know, nobody could really hurt me. And, and I got to the point of where I was one tile away from the chasm dragging my dead body. <laughs> I killed a guy. So I was dragging him back over there. 
And, you know, it's tough when everybody's ganging up on you. So you got like five other, you know, people, well, four people that are trying to take you out. And, uh, you know, time was not on my side and I wound up losing. It was very close though, but it was very interesting. I could see how it could be fairly fun with a, a large group of people. And, you know, it's, it's not a game that I would personally buy because, you know, just of the fact that it's uh, a lot easier for me to get uh, two and three person games in uh, rather than, you know, such large mm-hmm. groups. Yeah, I think it actually does work but, pretty uh, well with three or four, um, too. Uh, my yeah. brother and I think probably tried it that way when he first bought it back in 2004. I think that's when it came out. But but mm-hmm. since then, you know, we play it, you know, probably one five or six player game a year, like I said. Um, the original problems that it had is that it was incredibly unbalanced when it was first released. Um, a lot of the scenarios okay. had obviously not been very well play tested, And so, you know, there'd be just a landslide that the... the trader would win or a landslide that the um, the loyal people, the, the non-trader people would win. Um, but from, they basically, even before they released the new version, they put out some revised rule books and revised uh, booklets for the the two sides, like you said, because you, when you, you do it, you kind of separate and you each read your little sections. And ever since then, I think the last two or three games we played have come down to the last turn or two, kind of like you were saying, where one, one person yeah, yeah. is about to accomplish their thing because uh, the other neat thing is that you don't necessarily know how the other person's going to win. Um, exactly. That That's a mystery. Only the the trader knows exactly how he's supposed to win. And you can give, get some ideas about what kind of things they're trying to do, but you don't exactly know when or how they're going to accomplish that. Likewise, you may not even know, they may not know how you're going to kill them or something. I mean, you know, so there's this double blind exactly. sort of um, situation you have set up that, to me is extremely thematic. If you really just enjoy a, a story in a game sort of, um, it works very well. I think there's probably still some issues with some imbalance here and there. Uh, some people don't like the fact that you start the game and you don't know how you're going to end it. But to me, that's really interesting. Maybe I'm the trader, maybe you're the trader, but you know, and you don't know that until that hot roll happens. So you're all kind of working together to discover and, and explore this house. And then all of a sudden, bam, you find out exactly how the game's going to end and you have to try to push to get that happen, you know, to, to happen for you rather than let the other side win. And when we played, I found that, or I felt rather that the players kind of used a little bit of an exploit in the game where they use that elevator. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm talking Mystical about where they can basically like move it around. Yeah, that's it. And they're just basically moving it all over the place. And I felt that was a little unfair, <laughs> mainly because they used it against well, me. Well, now the advantage of that, but I mean that's part of the, the strategy. Advantage of that is that when the players use it, when the regular explorers use it, they have to roll a die randomly. But if yes. the the trader or monsters use it, you get to determine where it goes. Um, so you should grab that sucker and take it away from them, <laughs> put it where they couldn't use it. But that's a very good point. <laughs> um, that's I guess just a lot of neat things well, like that in the original version, which is this is something that people complain about forever, but I always thought it was kind of cute. There was a misprint actually on the underground lake, and the underground lake is in the attic. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, wow. so that you know, some people are like that's Whoops. stupid. Why is it up in the attic? Well, it's it's a haunted house. People, come on, this is not reality, knows, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I kind of <laughs> I still like my old version just because it's got that and um, and all, the character that goes along with it, but. And the components in the game are, are mm-hmm. kind of neat. Although, uh, I'm not sure which version this was that I played. You get these little uh, card tiles or whatnot that show your character, and then you have your statistics, mm-hmm. your, your stats along the side, like uh, what, speed? Speed and, and might, I think, and then... Yeah, speed, yeah. Then speed, sanity might, and intelligence so or something. 
think that's mm-hmm. right. And there were these little black markers that would kind of slide in on the side mm-hmm. and they would point at the number. Those things didn't fit very oh, really? well. Yeah, so I wound up just putting them on top of uh, mm-hmm. my board and just hopefully not nudging it at all during I mean, the game. That's the other complaint I think that happened with the, the new version is that a lot of fans of the game um, were hoping it would see a nice, really awesome upgrade, you know, where sort of like Fantasy Flight does when they reprint things, they really upgrade components oh, yeah. and they do all kinds of cool things. But Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast, it looks like they basically went back to the exact same print setup they had before, except they actually used cheaper materials. So a lot of the tiles were warped oh, and, no. and issues like that with the slider clamps not really, you know, fitting onto the uh, to the little character card things as well. So um, I think that definitely was a was a missed opportunity to to really make a nice add something to the game, even that would make people that had the old version want to rebuy it. Whereas now, I think more people are looking to i wish i had the old version with the new rules which you can easily print out from online anyway awesome that was uh betrayal at house on the hill what do you got chris let's talk about pandemic it's it's my favorite game and and of course it's been yes, the big uh to do lately that the fifth anniversary edition um you know is was coming out and is already out um, in fact it was in target before the official release date even hit yeah that was funny <laughs> but um and it's it's generated a lot of controversy i think that um just the idea that uh, do we really need a new version? You know, some people dislike the new art, even though the whole point was to make it more modern looking and attractive to mass media sort of uh, markets out there. Um, and uh, so I finally had the chance to, to play it finally, like it's been out long, but I had the chance to play it last week and actually look at it. And, um, and you know, like for the most part, I, I do like it. I mean, I, I'm interested here. I, I'm such a big fan. I played my copy over a hundred times and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to rebuy it just to give a little bit more money to, to the company that, that created this great game. Um, but I think the, the real thing that to me has fallen down on it is that the quality again is just not that great. There's really? a very obvious misprint on the board. There's one connection from, uh, Sao Paulo, I think over to Africa, whatever the city on the west, west side of Africa is. So there's no way to get from South America to Africa directly. You have to go back up through Europe to do that um, as it's printed on the board. Wow. And they said, oh, that must, I think there was originally even some backpedaling and some excuses made that it was a printing error. But if you actually look in the rule book, it's the same way in the rule book. So obviously it was a mistake on whoever set up the board and made that design. And so now I think, I mean, I don't know right. if they're going to have to like print boards and have those available for people to to get because it's a pretty major deal to to have this connection on the board that's just not there. And then on top of that, the, the cards to me feel very very flimsy. I mean, again, whether you like the art on them, the the whole design, um, that's sort of a matter of personal taste. But uh, they're fine to me. It's just a matter that I, I would want to absolutely sleeve my cards uh, before I would play with them again. And uh, just because I already saw a few nicks on the edges of them, but I definitely love the cool translucent little cubes that they have for the, the uh, disease cubes. Right. Um, I wish that the black ones though were translucent. They're actually just like a flat black plastic. If they had used like that smoky sort of dark purple or grayish sort of color, that would look really cool. But again, it's just with it being my favorite game, I just wanted it to be awesome and stellar and just, you know, be something that right. people would just absolutely flock to want to buy. And uh, just the way that it was handled Eh, is is not necessarily that. I think plus the whole compatibility issues. 
one of my game lust things we're going to talk about later is actually the new expansion to this coming out and the fact that the new expansion is only going to come out in the same format as the new version so if you're going to want to get it for your old game you actually have to buy these compatibility packs they're going to put out that has basically new cards to, to replace the cards in your old game and your old um, first expansion and stuff like that so it's um right. I, I don't begrudge them kind of making the reboot i think a lot of companies do that a lot of games go through that process but I just think it could have been done a little bit better and maybe people wouldn't be complaining so much if they were obviously getting something that was a better quality product in the end. Um, but, you know, again, I, I love it, so I'm still going to get it. It's just a matter of, <laughs> you know, a little bit of that, oh, why couldn't it be just what I wanted it to be? So Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it, you know, it sounds like they went maybe like 95% of the way, like doing an awesome mm-hmm. thing, and then they kind of just fell short. Yeah, that's definitely because, again, you know, if you look at like Facebook and, and a lot of the things that have been released there – it's really cool and exciting, and I think they've done a good job in building Absolutely. up to it. But then there's enough of this negativity sort of coming back that it's, eh, you know. <laughs> well, one thing I was kind of just wondering while you were talking, how feasible is it just to take the components from the version, you know, that you just bought and use it with your old copy? I, I think you could definitely. So, you know, the map is correct. Yes, then. the old map is correct, of course. So um, you could yeah. take the cubes, certainly, and put in there. Um Again, I think another thing, people were hoping that there would be some sort of enhanced player token on the board. It's always been just a colored pawn. And if anything, I think the colored pawns that come in the new version are in lower quality than the ones that came with On the Brink before. Um, So it's just, you know, if there had been like nice little figures maybe even, that that would have been another thing that would have prompted people to say, well, heck, I'm just going to go ahead and get it and just to have the new stuff. Um, But I don't think it's good enough to buy the new stuff just to get the the translucent cubes because that's about the only real upgraded thing you would get other than the cards. Right. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> Again, like you said, yeah. it's just and, uh, 95%. If they just really pushed it over the edge, it'd be something that, that a lot of people I think would be happy to go out and get. But. And I was kind of wondering too about how, you know, since this was a fairly established game, I mean, it had been around for years, they probably didn't do any play testing, which is probably why they didn't catch this. You know, like the whole piece on the map, because if it had gone through playtesting of sorts, mm-hmm. that should have been caught. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I bet it went to, you know, whoever the graphic designer was probably did Artists, it, yeah. probably threw it in front of somebody and they saw what they wanted to see. Um, and since I doubt anybody much played the actual board, you're right. I, I just probably fell through the cracks. So, Whoopsie. <laughs> you know, since uh, you wrote about picking this thing up in, on your site. And then I was kind of looking at it. I'm like, because, you know, I, I enjoy Pandemic. It's it's a fun game. And the fact of getting upgraded components was always just an extreme allure mm-hmm. to me. But after hearing everything about the game and, and the way they're progressing about it, you know, just that the quality isn't there with the components, because I've essentially already upgraded by buying On the mm-hmm. Brink. They released the original game, and then On the Brink had the Petri dishes, Petri dishes, however you say that, you know, it had the new pawns and so forth. In some respects, this is like a third upgrade or a second mm-hmm. upgrade. A second upgrade. It's like, how many times do you need to upgrade? Right. Like Especially when it makes, it's not backwardly compatible, you know, with the old version or the, like, right, right now I cannot play on the brink, my, the version I have, with the new game because the card backs are different um, and it just really wouldn't work. And then I think my real... Unless you sleeve there, them. There you go. Right? Exactly. If, you, if, you, if you opaque sleeve like them, the you, you can absolutely. Yeah. But then the other thing is that I'm afraid that people are going to be out there buying this at Target and and, and everywhere else it's sold, and, um, and and not that the the big board problem 
you know, is a, makes the game unplayable, but it's also just, it bothers me that this incorrect board is going to be purchased by who knows how many people that'll never be on board game geek and never know that there's a problem and never know what the board is supposed to look like, you know? Um, and so again, exactly. it's my favorite game. I want people to get up, be out there and play it. think it's just this awesome game. And who knows? That's just stupid. Why is there no connection between South Africa and I'm sorry, South America and Africa? And there is, and there should be, and, and it's just not there. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe they'll come out with, uh, another upgrade kit, which includes some like pinstripe tape. <laughs> So you just put it out. Exactly. The I think, and that's, you know, some people, you're just going to draw it on there or use some electrical tape or something, yeah. some yellow electrical tape. But, um, but still it's, you know, it's still a great game and, and I'm, I'm glad to have it. And again, I'm, I'm ha- happy to give more money to, to Z-Man and to, to, uh, Matt Leacock who, who designed it and stuff, but it's just a matter of, oh, why couldn't it be a little bit better? So, yeah. so that's pandemic, exactly. I guess. Um, yeah. What next? What do you want to talk about? So that was it. Uh, next game I want to talk about is Gunrunners. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people have heard about this game. This is a, a new game. It's on Kickstarter right now from uh, Stephen Finn, creator of, of Biblios, and also uh, Scripts and Scribes, as it was known in its prior life there. This game was a, a nice surprise. I mean, I'm a huge fan of dice and cards and fun. <laughs> so those three things. And this game's got all three of those. Uh, basically, the, the gist of this game is that the players are uh, law enforcement and they're looking to stop criminals around the world from receiving crates of weapons and who knows what else. So what you do in the game is you have a number of locations where uh, you will place your cards of secret agents and the secret agent cards have these different numbers on them, uh, numbers uh, one through six. And some of them have special abilities. And you place these cards face down to the left of these locations. So on a two-player game, you'll have three cards, three location cards. On a four-player game, you'll have four location cards. So you place these cards face down on the left side of the location cards, which is the uh, probationary agent column, as, as it's called. Then as the game progresses, what you do is you start replacing those probationary agents and you kick them over face up on the right hand side of uh of the locations so what's interesting about this and i don't know if i did it justice with my uh, little explanation here is that you will place cards down but somebody else will trigger them into the game so you're basically placing a hidden card and then me on my move I will flip that face up because uh, you can only replace another player's probationary agent. You cannot do your own. And then once the cards come on the right-hand side, um, uh, you will see, you know, different people have different values on their cards. And when there's four agents on the right-hand side of the locations, that'll trigger a bust where you basically tally up the uh, numeric value of the cards and the person that has the highest value essentially wins and then uh, uh what do you win this is part i haven't told you guys about yet and that's that there's these little cubes that you place down as crates so they go on top of the locations uh as you're playing the game these crates get placed on the locations with a die that you roll so you roll your die if you let's say roll a one you place a cube on the first location and you get some pretty significant piles there like, I think uh, we've had, uh, like, 20-some crates on, on the locations before. 
And then uh, some of the agents will have special abilities, you know, like the ability to move crates in between locations and to, uh, you know, move probationary agents around, you know, where you can take a sneak peek at all of them and just rearrange them. So it's a really fun game and, you know, it combines, you know, a couple elements in interesting ways that I've never seen before. You can probably play this game in about maybe 15, 20 minutes, half hour tops for about a two-player game, because I've played on my lunch hour, lunch break, uh, a couple of times, and uh, we've made it within the allotted time, which <laughs> I, I don't know if you ever played games on, on your lunch break. Uh, you know, sometimes the games can go long and put you in jeopardy. <laughs> Only solo games, so uh, I usually don't have much opportunity <laughs> yeah. at, game, at lunchtime. Yeah, you can get into jeopardy with the boss, <laughs> especially if you're doing it in, the, in your office mm-hmm. or something like that. But... Uh, this game was a really nice surprise, and you know, Doctor Finn has put out some fantastic games in the past because Biblios is a very highly regarded game, and I think this one here uh, basically follows in in the footsteps of Biblios. It's it's a lot of fun. It's got a lot of interesting twists to it, and I really enjoy it. So, have you, have you heard anything about? I this really course? haven't. Mm-mm. I haven't. Uh, I have definitely haven't encountered it. Of course, like I said, it's on Kickstarter, I guess, but um, I haven't had the yeah. chance to. To, to play a prototype or even see it in, in action. So, nope. Yeah, it's kind of been sliding under the radar for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, I encourage everybody to check it out. And uh, it, it is a lot of fun. I think uh, Ryan Metzler did a review mm-hmm. of it from the Dice Tower. It's, it's a lot of fun. Definitely check it out. And I can't wait for it to, to come out. And that was Gunrunners. A definite thumbs up for me. So, Chris, uh, what do you got next? Um, I, I finally have had the chance to, uh, to encounter a few of the Tempest games from um, AEG. And Courtier is the one that I've, I've already picked up and, and managed to play a few times. Awesome game. Um, and Phil Berry, who I understand you're going to be interviewing a little bit later. Um, I've really yep. enjoyed, uh, I guess, both of his previous published games. And actually, I reviewed them together on one of my other podcasts. Um, yeah, number two. It I was, think it yeah, was. absolutely. And, uh, and so Courtier both for the designer and just the whole, the whole Tempest line. And, and uh, I can't, the, the potential that it has, the possibilities of the shared world uh, and kind of building on a continuing storyline. Um, I definitely wanted to get into that and I actually played it as a demo sort of um, at a local convention back in November. And then I managed to play it another okay. time once I, I picked it up. It, in a lot of ways, it actually reminds me of uh, Revolution, which was his first game. Um, because you're putting these cubes out to influence these different people. But, of course, the way you actually do that, the technique of, of playing the cards to, to, to either put down influence cubes or to move them around, that's a lot different. But at the same time, I think it has a very similar weight, uh, that it's not a heavily strategic game, which I think has gotten it some flack, actually, that uh, people complain about the randomness of the cards and stuff like that, just in, in you know controlling how you can play out your influence. But... Um, it also just means that you have to sort of, I'm a big fan of rather than being in full control of a game of having to sort of ride the, the, the randomness that the game gives you that you have to, you know, take into account the things the game's doing and, and then make the best of it. And, uh, Cordier definitely has that, um, where at the early on you're playing and you're putting a few cubes out here and there, but once someone actually accomplishes one of those petition cards, which is basically how you score for the most time, you influence uh, two or three or four different people, and you then turn that in. You remove that influence to play out one of these these goal cards, the petition cards. And once that happens, you start flipping up those um, 
the fashion cards. The basically the, the queen starts to exert her influence, and once you get those neutral cubes out on the board, it really gets kind of crazy pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely. But anyway, so I, I, I've definitely enjoyed it. I think it has a lot more to offer that I still really haven't fully comprehended maybe um, just in the way that you kind of have to do those different things. But again, I think it fits right in with the kind of games that, that Phillips um, has designed before. And, uh, and to me, it's a really nice introduction for the, the whole Tempest line. So had y'all reviewed this before? I can't remember if you, I know you talked about a lot of the games. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. We did this uh, a couple episodes back, I think 23 we spent a considerable amount of time talking about it. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to mention was the game almost has like two personalities initially in the beginning, when you're starting to put your influence cubes out on the board, you know, it's kind of like you're expanding. And then as that first petition hits, it's like, all right, the game mm -hmm. is on, you know, it's like, it's almost like a slow buildup. And then like, boom, you're, you're, you're moving. Cause now you're using the, your abilities and, the queen will oftentimes just put neutral cubes all over the board and you can use those neutral cubes as your own, which is mm -hmm. very cool. Unless you play, what is it? No cheese, I think is the variant or something. There's a, there's a variant where you don't use uh, some of the cubes or something like that, but it, it's really interesting and it, it's a, a great, almost like gateway mm -hmm. to area control for some people. That's kind of how it was for my wife. Cause I don't think she's really, played any influence or area control games prior mm -hmm. to this it's a fantastic game yeah absolutely i think it's um again the, the very first game we that i played that whole first phase you were talking about where you're just sort of putting your influence out and nobody has enough to really finish a petition card yet Do anything. that seemed yeah. to go on and on and on and it really made me a little bit worried yeah. about it um and then of course once like you said once you have a petition or two start to hit and you have all these um, neutral cubes out on the board to help you accomplish things quicker it really speeds up but again i was a little bit worried that that first phase went on a little bit too long um but then in my my recent play that didn't happen really much at all that um we had some of that but somebody was able to complete maybe a two person um uh, petition card pretty quickly and so the game ramped up much quicker and and even though i think in the end, it didn't. The whole game didn't last a whole lot shorter than my first game. It felt a little bit more like it was moving better, I guess. So, but but certainly, like I said, I'm I'm glad I picked it up and and uh, hope to play it more. So. Yeah, and one other thing too is while you're playing this game, I've always found that you know even though it might not be your turn because somebody else is doing their cube placement or whatnot, it still engages you to some extent because you're kind of like looking around, like you know what am I going to do next? You know, where's, you know, here's my cards, you know, it's, it just en engages you a little mm -hmm. bit more than some other games where you're just kind of like sitting there and, and waiting for your, your turn. And you're always in. like trading the, um, uh, what are they called? The coterie cards that they give you the, cause if you control the, if you have the most influence in any one of the different sections, like the church or the, um, the, basically the university, like whatever it's called, um, you, you get a special power for doing that. But if someone then, gets more influence in that area than you, they get the card. Um, and there's, I found there's a lot of neat little, again, tactical shenanigans you can sort of play where you pick up, you know, you do this particular power that lets you pick up another power that then when you do your, your cube, your play your card, you get an extra benefit from playing that card. So I like little games that let you do that sort of shenanigan, shenanigan feel where you're kind of putting things together <laughs> yeah. um, as you're making an interesting turn play or something. Awesome. So that was uh Courtier, And I think, uh, 
we, we can both give that mm-hmm. one a thumbs yeah, up, so right? So far, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, great little game. And uh, great job, Philip, as usual. <laughs> okay, so uh, another game I want to talk about real quick here is Archipelago, or Archipelago. And this is uh, kind of an interesting little game. I don't know if little is the right term for it. Interesting big game with a lot of components and beautiful art, just amazing art. It's so colorful. Uh, if you haven't checked this one out, definitely look at some of the images up on BGG and check this out or you know some of the reviews. This is a interesting game that combines a, a lot of different uh, mechanisms where you've got these amazing tiles, hexagons, that you place out on the board that function as the board. And they're two-sided and you get to choose which side you put on and it has to fit a certain way in order to be able to place it. Uh, you have really great wooden pieces where you've got chip and your little meeples and uh there's two different uh markets there's uh import and export i believe that they're called there's a a, a disc that has all of your different abilities that you can do you know of like you know whether you want to procreate and get more meeples or um to be able to explore there's, there's like a whole you can tax there's there's a whole slew of these things and, uh, you know, we're just, this is just going to be a, a very quick overview of the game, not anywhere near a review, so I'm not going to go into all of them, you know, because we don't have the time. And, and then there's also, uh, all these cards too, uh, which are in a market of sorts. And a, a really funky mechanism for these is that the way that the cards are oriented, and, you know, they're, they're the square cards, they're not the, uh, rectangular mm-hmm. cards. The way that they're oriented determines their cost. So as one of the actions that you get as part of your turn, you can rotate these cards, which either boosts their value up or, you know, pumps it down. So, you know, you can take a, a four card and drop it to a three or another one might go from, you know, five to a ten. And eventually some of them essentially get killed off or they get removed. And then the, the one thing that some people kind of knock this game for is that you technically do have hidden agendas for ending the game. Like, for example, last game that I played, uh, basically emptying these uh, little explore tokens triggers the game end. And then everybody on that same card also has kind of like a, a hidden goal for getting extra points. So the thing that people knock this game for is that everybody in the game has these cards and they apply to everybody, but you don't know what the other people have. So you don't know if somebody's like trying to get money or if somebody's trying to get people or, or, or whatnot. It can be a very complicated game. This is our first play, I think, was with five people, and we spent probably close to two hours on the first round. <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal. Wow. And yeah, just because a lot of people had so many questions and just going back and forth, you know, so I, I don't know if that's really a, a fault of the game because we played a three player game easily within two hours uh, the last time that I played it. But it's it just, there's a lot of stuff to go over in terms of, you know, how things get placed and, you know, a lot of rules, clarifications. I don't know if the manual is uh, written in the best possible way. It's it's definitely got a lot of information in it. Uh, maybe some things were kind of lost in translation. Who knows? But uh, uh, the game is a lot of fun. It's it's one that I definitely want to play again. 
I'm still kind of on the fence on if I would want to own it. Uh, I want to say that it's a three and up game. I don't know if it's got a, a two player ability in it, but uh, the game is, uh, is is very interesting, very colorful. The components are really nice, and uh, you know it's one that I definitely want to explore some more. Have you had a chance to check this one out, Chris? I, I haven't. Um, I looked at it, and, and I don't know if I was scared away by the, the two-hour playtime as well, but um, I think to me, I still am sort of looking for that exploration game, you know, the one that does it really, really well, especially kind of the the navigate the um, the naval sort of Decker, navigation yeah. game. You know, I, I own Ant Decker, the, yeah, yeah. The, at least the new version of Ant Decker, and I kind of like that game. I kind of like the way you're discovering the islands and all. But um, but at the same time, it seems to go on and on and on, and there's there's some things that make it you know less ideal, um, and uh, and so do, do you feel do you get that sort of exploration? You feel do, in and the game, a lot of it, it is really motivated uh, based on the card that you have. Because like or... I said, in the last game, which actually uh, I want to mention was a, a three player mm -hmm. short game, because there's like a short, a medium, and a long game. <laughs> I can't imagine how long the long game can run. But yeah, we played the mm -hmm. short game in two hours, and, and my goal was to explore. So I kept exploring all the time, like as much as I could. And in that particular game, you know, you definitely got that. Um, I've heard that other people, when they've played it, you know, they don't necessarily have mm -hmm. that kind of motivation, you know, because, you know, let's say they need, you know, people or something. You know, you can pretty much play a whole game with very minimal exploration, like if you're looking for money or, or whatnot. So, you know, a lot of it is really determined mm -hmm. based on, you know, what the people, you know, the, the end game cards that people draw. You know, there, there are definitely going to be other games that mm -hmm. will have that consistently for most players. So I played Clash of Cultures uh, not too long ago, and, and that one I'd say probably had a better sense of exploration. So uh, that's Archipelago, or Archipelago, I keep saying Arch for some reason. Uh, that's Archipelago. Uh, a very interesting game, one, again, that uh, I would definitely want to check out some more and get some more plays in. And, you know, I don't know if it's one that I'd want to own, but I'd definitely play somebody else's copy. So that's Archip Archipelago. Guildhall was the extra, sort of the surprise game that came out from AEG at Essen. Um, and with its theme sort of set in this medieval sort of period, I don't know why they quite didn't stick it into uh, the, the Tempest line, other than the fact that the characters really don't matter, I guess. They're just more almost suits that have some little powers that kind of relate to it. But the basic idea is that it's a set-building game. You've got these uh, different chapters, different uh, right. kinds of professions, I guess, that you're playing. And the, when you play one of these cards, they have a particular effect. But the strength of the effect is dependent on the number of cards you already have in your guild house right. um, of that type. So when you play your first weaver, she lets you put one card directly into your guild hall. But if you've already got two weavers down, you get to place two more cards into your guild hall and pick one back up. Correct. Um, yep. And that there's um, different things. Again, there's a trader that lets you trade cards from your guild hall to the guild hall of another player. Um, there's a historian that lets you pull cards out of the graveyard, out of the discard pile, basically. Um, there are cards that, assassins that let you kill off other people's um, you know, members of their guild, whatever. Um, so there's all these different effects you can have. And, uh, right. and you're always having to choose, you know, when do I play it? Do I want to try to get it directly into the guild hall? Um, do I want to play it for its power, whatever? Um, so there's 
you know, a lot of different ways you're trying to build that up. And then there's tons of interactivity because again, you're always trading or, or killing or whatever, uh, things in other people's, uh, you know, their setups, their guild halls. So, um, it's, it, to me, it's been a really interesting game. Uh, I think it's very, very elegant in a lot of ways. Um, just how everything is sort of interconnected. Uh, it all makes sense and, and works pretty well. Um, is that kind of your impression of it as well? That Oh, absolutely. And this game was kind of a surprise for me. Well, it was a surprise for everybody, right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. Yeah. Of of how they treated it. Because, uh, you know, they didn't release any information up until uh, uh, Essen. But uh, it, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. I was kind of intrigued by the art on the game and just uh, that whole mechanism of of the shifting powers of the cards. And, you know, once, once we got it to the table, like we played it over and over and over and over again. It was, it was just a blast. Now, one thing that was interesting was that we played it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we played it wrong for, I don't know how many games, because I guess the the rules kind of left this open to interpretation, at least the way that I read it was that, uh, you know, if it, if the card had a zero, a two, and a four ability, we didn't do anything on one and three. And then... Oh, when, okay. Yeah, and, you know, I, I kind of looked for clarification on that, and we just played it, uh, you know, without playing it properly. And regardless of, of that mistake, it was still fun. Mm-hmm. It, it was still a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, once uh, I got it over to the game group... Uh, that's where the rules were kind of clarified to me and we, we mm-hmm. played it properly and, you know, it, it was still fun. It definitely changed the way that you kind of uh, acted with the game. One thing I wanted to mention real quick on the variances in, in the play was when we played it in the game group, there was a lot of back and forth action, which I really didn't care for because it was a four player game and people were kind of vengeful, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, you know, you took my, whatever cards you know i'm gonna get you so there was a lot of back and forth action like that i know some people probably enjoy that i was just kind of annoyed by it well i think it it sort of has that um part of it maybe a little bit of vengeful so part of it maybe just be kind of bashing the leader as well where yeah there's oh, a, yeah. there are a lot of things you can do either through assassination or through the trading the stealing plus i didn't even really get into the way you actually score points is that whenever you get one of all five colors of the same profession, you kind of zip them up and you use that then as an action to buy some of the score cards, some of the victory point cards. And some of those victory point cards have ways for you to steal things or trade things with people as well. Um, so you, there's just all this ability to do that. And, and you're right. I think the only downside I've really felt with Guildhall is that it tends to move a little bit slow. That's yes. because you're choosing on your turn what to do. And you have no real control when it's not your turn. Things may have changed dramatically, even with your own guild hall since your last turn. It's hard to plan ahead. Um, and sometimes your first action may be actually to discard and draw cards. And now you have to look at a brand new hand and figure out how to use that. So it feels a little bit slow. There can be a little bit of maybe analysis paralysis in there. Um, and especially then when you have like a four player game, there could be enough of that back and forth of people stealing and interrupting and stuff that nobody seems to make progress for, for a decent period of the game. That's extremely well said, because that's exactly what happened in my four-player game, where, you know, you got 
really close to building that guild or completing that chapter. Mm -hmm. And then it gets taken from you. And then you have to start all over, you know, unless you can steal somebody else's. You know, the, the two player games that I played seems, uh, a lot better at that. And they were also a lot quicker because mm -hmm. two player games take about a half hour. Whereas I want to say it was close to an hour, if not more for a four player game. Yeah. And that's kind of in my experience. Again, it's not that the game is overly long, but it feels a little bit slow and, and maybe yeah. for, for its weight, I guess, you know, if you're pushing an hour or more, that probably is a little bit too long for what it does. But uh, kind of, I think my sweet spot right now is probably three players um, because okay. I like a little of that interaction. Um, in a two-player game, it's almost like there's no choice. You know, if I'm going to steal from somebody, I've got to steal from you. Exactly. And, and because of the limitations that you can never have two of the same color of anything, um, you can't trade someone something they already have. And therefore, if I really wanted to trade my weavers to try to get someone else's farmers, um, if you don't have what I need or you have the thing I'm trying to give you, then I just can't trade at all. Um, and so I think that's... It just opens things up a little bit to have at least another player, but then at the same time, if you get you know three to four players, um, it seems to slow down quite a bit. So I really enjoy the game. I just yes. wish it moved a little bit faster. So I was kind of wondering if they would have expansions with other professions. I could definitely see that. I could too, because it wouldn't. I mean, there's really nothing. The, the professions themselves don't interact with each other so much. Right. I mean, other than the fact you can steal the cards, but, you know, because I have four assassins doesn't make me less likely to be affected by someone else's weaver or something like that. Not, not weaver, mm -hmm. oh, trader yeah. or something like that. Um, but yeah, you could definitely drop in whole professions or trade them out or whatever um, to get a, a different, but basically the same game with some different interactions, I guess. And, you know, with the size of the box mm -hmm. being as huge as it is, <laughs> for this game yeah. that's that's one thing i found a little annoying this box is ginormous compared to the actual size of the you know the card stacks in there mm -hmm. so technically you know you could probably fit in 30 40 expansions maybe <laughs> yeah they have <laughs> these huge wells because the you have the place to put the cards yeah. and underneath them is an even a cavernous well to put all the little victory point chips yeah. from the for the farmers and all but yeah um you could definitely fit lots into that box so. Yeah, and if you pull that insert out, it's probably like, uh, you know, air from China. Just <laughs> that was all chat trapped in there. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, G Guildhall, a, a lot of fun. Uh, definitely a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I think it's about it for the uh, on-the-table section uh, where we've uh, talked <laughs> for quite a, a long lot. while. <laughs> but time flies when you're having fun, right, Chris? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so here, uh, let's move on from the on-the-table section here. And uh, we've got an interview uh, that was recorded previously with uh, Mr. Philip DuBerry, where we talk about uh, his games, uh, Revolution, Kingdom of Solomon, Courtier, and uh, his new title, Family Vacation. So here we go with the interview. So today we've got a special guest with us. He's a designer of a number of games, which I feel that pretty much every single one of them is just plain brilliant. So uh, let me introduce to you Mr. Philip DuBerry. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a fanboy of yours, I guess. <laughs> so you have at least one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be the charter member of your fan club. <laughs> so, my wife and I, we've played uh, uh, pretty much all of your games so far, and uh, we, we really love them, and I'm very excited to have you on the show. I appreciate you saying that. No, no problem. You've been designing games for uh, quite a few years and published them, I don't know, I think you started about six years ago. 
with 2012 last year. That was uh, a, a really big year for you because you've had two releases come out. So I'm kind of curious, basically, you know, what was your first exposure to the hobbyist games that uh, we all know and love? You know, what, what did you like back then? Sure. All right. Well, I, I sort of grew up on games and we played, you know, the standard kind of stuff and Monopoly and Risk and all of that. And uh, then I got into uh, Axis and Allies when I was a teenager and played that quite a bit. I really didn't play any, like, Euro games until I played Settlers of Catan, which uh, I guess the, the early 2000s maybe, and just had no idea all the stuff that there was and the advances that had been made. And so it was it was just an, an amazing time of, of uh, falling in love with that game and, and finding other games and, and getting onto Board Game Geek and figuring out what's going on, what is all this stuff, what is this thing. So yeah, so then that, that's pretty much what drew me in. And I, I kind of went through a similar type of thing where it's, it's literally like having your eyes open to this whole new world <laughs> yeah. of possibilities that yeah. you never knew existed. Yeah. Excellent. So how did you decide to transition just from you know, playing those games to making your own games? You know, what were your first creations like? I actually made uh, several games when I was a kid and going actually really all through my life. I've just sort of, I don't know, somehow it's just been this weird sort of thing I've done. Had no idea that anybody else would be interested in playing those games, and it was very hard to get other people to play them. They weren't very good, especially you know the the younger ones are just like roll and move kind of things. And then I you know I made some more like uh, access analysis, war game, space game kind of stuff. Then I made Revolution in uh, well, I guess it was 2007 or so. Suddenly people started actually like to play it. That was kind of shocking, and so we played it more and more, and um, and so then I decided this I, this is so much fun. Everybody likes it. We really need to figure out a way for other people to play it, and so that's really what, how it came about. Me building them by myself, you know, in this little room, and <laughs> trying to sell them on the internet. As I read in, I believe, a designer diary that you were going through and you were creating all of these by yourself. Was that a huge? time investments to make those <laughs> absolutely you know i was trying to do a really good job on them and uh, i had some pretty nice materials and uh but yeah it took several hours to make one i think i ended up i ended up constructing somewhere between 30 and 40 of them and i can just imagine the cost because i've done a, a number of print and play games so yeah. you know if you're making a whole bunch like that it, it can be quite exorbitant in price have any of those original games, you know, outside of Revolution, that you designed, have any of them come through to your current works? Have you, like, reused any of those ideas and elaborated on them and improved on them? Not really. I mean, a lot of my stuff before my exposure to more modern games, not a whole lot there worth salvaging. And when you were working on uh, Revolution back then, you self-published those, like you, I believe, kind of said here. What was that like in comparison to you know, having Kickstarter available to you right now? <laughs> yeah, that was way before Kickstarter. Yes. And, uh, so I don't know what I would have done now in the same situation. I might have tried to do it that way. I mean, that sort of, you know, it makes sense. It um, gives people a little bit more of an option because before your option was plunk down a bunch of money and just buy a bunch of them and hope you sell them and probably you won't. Or... Um, try to go find somebody to publish it for you and that's a pretty daunting proposition as well and so i i sort of chose the third option but now kickstarter is kind of like the fourth option absolutely also in those diaries 
basically really detail and great length all the playtesting, prototyping, and so forth, and how you would you know go to all of the you know different events and, and talk to publishers, you know both good and bad, you know getting all sorts of feedback. But once you get published, or once uh, a company, let's say like Steve Jackson Games with uh, with Revolution, once they pick up your game and decide to publish it, what kind of input do you have on those games? Do you still maintain some kind of influence, or do they basically take it and run with it? I've had several different experiences. So with Steve Jackson, they they did quite a bit of it, and uh, they did you know they they would ask me about some things. They let me comment and and uh, you know make my case for certain things. I had to argue pretty hard to get the bid refund rule into the variance on the rules and some things like that. But on the other hand, that was kind of nice because I really didn't have to do very much work. So, and I didn't really maybe understand that at the time. Then later on, when I had like um, Kingdom of Solomon, I mean, Minion Games, especially back then, was just very tiny. And so it was just like all on me. And, you know, James was helping. And so we spent like, over a year, just almost every day, sending emails back and forth and tweaking things, and then there's a couple of artists involved, and and it was just like a massive undertaking, which the good news was I had a whole lot of control, and James was really good about this. He was like, how do you want this to be? And he would almost always defer to what, what, what I said. So it was nice in that respect, but it was a lot of work. And really, I think, um, you know, it sort of depends on the company. AEG is kind of... I felt like it was almost in between. They gave me all kinds of feedback and, and uh, say in how like Quartier came out. But they did a whole lot of work on their own, too. So, I don't know, it's sort of like they split the difference. But, uh, but yeah, it can go either way. Oh, absolutely. Once uh, Revolution was published, what was it like to actually see it in the stores? You know, it's kind <laughs> of like, you know, see your baby you oh, know, up man. on the shelves. How was that? Yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic. And for a while, it was even in um, Barnes & Noble, which that was just like, wow. My family and stuff, they're all like, you know, it's on Amazon. <laughs> that was like the pinnacle of achievement or something. But, it, you know, it's, it's definitely cool. Did anybody ever come up to you and ask for an autograph? Because you know I would. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a few people I sort of forced into it. But uh, <laughs> oh, okay. there's a couple of people at, uh, at some conventions I've, I've had to sign some boxes. But every once in a while. Oh, very, very cool. Once Kingdom of Solomon, I mean, you briefly uh, touched on that one. Uh, that was, I believe, your first contact with Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So how was that to go through Kickstarter and to watch it progress? You know, was it stressful? Is that something that like you just couldn't keep your you know web browser out of there? You know, that <laughs> status. Yeah, my understanding is that uh, most of the most of the people on Kickstarter do check it quite often. Which I think that's just kind of the way it is. Um, I don't. I'm not sure that it was terribly stressful. We did hit our goal pretty quickly, so it was not, you know, like oh, are we going to do this or whatever. We ended up doubling it, but back that's kind of the the beginning days of Kickstarter. So our goal was like five thousand, and we went to ten thousand. Right. We were just like ecstatic about that. Yeah, it's sort of a, a whole different thing now. Uh, so I'm interested to see how how it works out this time. Following Kingdom of Solomon, you had Courtier come out which originally you had titled as henry the great and it went through the whole tempest treatment which i I think is just an amazing thing that aeg did my wife wendy and i still play it and it's uh, a lot of fun love it so 
how is it uh, working with Ed Bolney of AEG to get your game rethemed? Was uh, you know you kind of touched on what this experience is like in, in comparison to your previous games, but what was that like? Yeah, no, I thought it was very very smooth. It was it was great. AEG has this really good uh, forum setup of all kinds of different playtesters across the country and probably even other places. And um, it's like one day he said, you know, you really ought to go on and check the forum for your game. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he shows me and I, I get on there and there's like just page after page of comments about my game. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, these are really high powered playtester folks and they, they were really getting into it and dissecting and coming up with ideas. And it took me a while to parse through all that and, tell what I thought about it all and we kind of ironed out some things and um, it was kind of uh, interesting how it even came to be. I brought Henry the Great to him at uh, Gen Con one of those years and um, I showed him this other game first and they're like well that's not really something we would be interested in or whatever. That's what I expected anyway. So anyway I get Henry the Great out and they're like alright this this is pretty cool and they brought a bunch of people over you know the, the other guys there and they're like this would be perfect for Tempest and I was like what's Tempest? You know, because yeah. they hadn't said anything to anybody. And so, um, but it turned out to be a really good fit. I mean, Tempest has all kinds of different characters and things. And, and uh, my game, you know, is about um, kind of intrigue in a, a court of a king. And there was just tons of characters on it. You don't really know very much about them, but they're all on there. And so it was pretty easy, it seemed like, to just sort of transport those people straight straight out of Tempest into that game. Now, you've got a new game in the pipe, and it's about to hit Kickstarter pretty soon here. What can you tell our listeners about this game? All right. That game's called uh, Family Vacation. It's actually one of the first games I made after Revolution, and actually came up with the idea while on vacation. You know, you're going down the interstate, and you're looking on the signs, and do you stop here, or where do you stop? Or, you know, the kid's getting kind of fussy, or is everybody good to go, or, you know, what... How are we gonna? There's a lot of logistics involved, and so um, I thought, you know, this would be an interesting game. And at that time, I was starting to uh, think that maybe I could be a game designer, and I was trying to stretch my, you know, muscles a little bit in that direction. And so, put together a prototype and play tested it some and worked with it. And um, that was a while ago, and I've still been sort of tweaking it all this time. Uh, it wasn't too much after that that I discovered uh, or met uh, Jim Dietz of Jolly Roger Games, and he seemed to like the game pretty well and was interested in publishing it. It's taken a little while. Um, He's got a lot of other projects he's working on, and his artists are working on different things, and so it's taken a while to get to where we are, but but I'm really happy with how it's going. Uh, The art is is going very well on it. Jacob Walker is the guy doing the art. He did, uh, like, Surf's Up Dude and a couple of other games, and it's got just a nice, fun sort of style to it. And so, yeah, so that's going to be, I hope, you know, on Kickstarter in a week or two at the most. I've kind of been following it over the past uh, several weeks at least, you know, because you've been putting out some updates on your website, in particular of how, you know, the art has changed over time. Sure. It's, uh, th- that's really an amazing thing to see. You know, at least from for me, where I'm, I'm not involved in any kind of design like that. It's just so interesting to see the progression and, and how you know the game improves as mm-hmm. as it goes along. This was something that you've had in development for quite some time, and it's finally coming to fruition now. How was it to develop that 
uh, type of game as opposed to the typical Euro game that you know you've had in the past. Did it require any different kind of processes or or place testers? You know, could did you have to have different groups or, or how did that go? Well, this uh, family vacation is a lot different from some of the other games that I've made. Um, it is still, I think, a Euro game, but it's a little bit more thematic and it's it's quite a bit simpler. I guess you could say maybe a gateway game, but it's it's, it's definitely something you can play with children. And you can play with relatives and friends who aren't gamers. I've had a lot of success just sort of bringing it out at like some kind of church gathering or something or some kind of, you know, family reunion or something. And people who do not play games will sit down and play it and have a good time. By the same token, um, you know, more experienced gamers can also, there's enough there that, that keeps them interested as well. Basically, the way it works is it just, it's, um, on a turn, you just move your little car one space. I mean, that's that's all you have to do. So that's pretty simple. And it sounds, oh, that sounds kind of boring and whatever. But there's a lot of decisions that go into that. You have a family and you have like a, four family members. So you have a dad and a mom and two kids. And each family member has two random interests. So you'll have, um, you know, maybe your dad likes golf and shopping or something. or And your kid maybe likes art museums and uh, hiking or something like that. And so then what you have to do is you have to figure out, okay, how am I, which cities am I going to go to that have those things that they like? Um, and you also have uh, three attractions that they would like to go to. So, for example, you, they might want to go to the Statue of Liberty or the Golden Gate Bridge or someplace like that. Those are first come, first serve. So if, uh, and some of them overlap with some of the other ones, and they're secret. So... It's like if I get to the Statue of Liberty first, then you can't get there. And it's worth a different amount of points uh, to me than it is to you, depending on how far away your hometown was. And that really goes with all of the uh, the different interests on the board. Once somebody does the little skiing space in Denver, it's gone. Nobody else can do it. And it sort of models maybe like when something gets really crowded and it's just not very fun. So then it also helps tremendously with the uh, the mechanics of the game because it sort of counts down everything and and um, closes it off the further you go. So you really have to decide, how am I going to navigate this? Where are my priorities? You also have one plane ticket, so you can make this big leap once during the game, and you've got to figure out, well, when am I going to do that? And there's also uh, some photographs you can take, and the photographs, the more of them you have, sort of like a geometric amount of points that you get for having a bunch of them. So you can either go for that real heavy or kind of maybe ignore them, and you have to sort of think about that. You can go to Canada or Mexico and get bonus points. You can go. You can get uh, cards that have little adventures on them. Most of them are good, but some of them are bad. Like you can even pick up a hitchhiker and take him to Denver if you want to. There's a couple of different options of things that you can do. So I think there's a lot in there for everybody. One thing that I'm immediately thinking, you know, once you're explaining the game here, is that at my house we tend to play a lot of family-friendly games, because uh, we've got a, a little son, and when a game like this comes along, it immediately piques my interest because it's something that we can introduce to him, and mm-hmm. he can play at one level in terms of you know strategies. You know, like a little kid might be able to just you know go from place to place. The adults can play on a different level and you know make more advanced decisions. Mm-hmm. So this is a it's a very interesting interesting type of game, and I'm really excited to see when it comes out. Now this game is going to be going on Kickstarter. How is the experience now compared to back in the uh, Kingdom of Solomon days? 
Yeah, I think I have a few um, ideas about maybe how it's going to be different. Uh, one one of the big things is um, now you have to have stretch goals, which that was kind of an innovation that that happened recently, which is a little bit different. We didn't have that, you know, several years ago when, when at the beginning of Kickstarter, and it's a really cool idea. It's a way to get everybody more excited about the game, and we've got some pretty cool um, stretch goals for family vacation. I think the first one is uh, some extra event cards like some adventure cards, but these would be maybe a little bit more of a take that kind of thing, which people may or may not like that, so they're sort of optional. But then after that, not too far along after that, and our goal is only like 12,000, so it wasn't it wouldn't take too much longer to get to this level, which would be adding the uh, Europe map to the game. So it'd be like maybe on the back of the board or a new board or something right in the box there with it, a whole new game that's Europe, and it's got like trains and ferries and different interests and uh, then if we go even further than that there's even a couple of other maps that uh, we're going to throw in too so it's pretty exciting i'm interested to see how how that works out did you want to say anything else about family vacation well i I think that's that's pretty much it Uh, i think our uh, the base level of pledge is only thirty dollars and that gets you the game with free shipping in the u.s and i think that's a really good price and i I think a lot of people are going to be excited about that yeah, I hope you'll consider uh, supporting us. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic value. And knowing your previous games, it's especially a fantastic value. <laughs> so, okay, one last question that I've got for you. So out of all of the games that you've uh, had published, and including even the, the latest one here, Family Vacation, does any one of them stand out to you beyond the rest? You know, basically on a personal level. And uh, if there is, which one uh, and uh, why? Well, it's sort of like asking somebody what who's their favorite kid, you know. Everybody's <laughs> like, got a favorite. Come on. Right? <laughs> but I guess if I had to say, I think I would probably say Revolution. I I don't know. I think that's got somehow that that just hit some sort of core that really appeals to a wide range of people, and it's got sort of that um, that sort of um, effervescent kind of other thing that you want your game to have but it's hard to you know put it into your game it's it's the more than the sum of its parts kind of thing and so that was that's been fun to watch and to see and um so i guess that's probably what i would say about that you know i can definitely see that you know i've gone to a lot of game stores all over the country a game store might not have the latest game that just came out or you know some of the titles that have disappeared but it's going to have revolution that's all the questions that uh, I've got for you today. Philip, thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, where can your listeners go to find out more about uh, Family Vacation? Well, I have a sort of a uh, design studio name that I'm trying to uh, work on right now. So my blog is at uh, www.fantasiogames.com. So it's Fantasio with a PH, and um, it's Latin, so just do the best you can, I guess. But yeah, and I think there's links to it from the My Board Game Geek page and stuff like that. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I've enjoyed this. Oh, no problem. And uh, I must say that, you know, I love reading the stories in your blog. I've gone through the majority of them, and your designer diaries are a really interesting read, especially if, you know, if somebody, I encourage the listeners that if you like, uh, you know, any of Phillips games, you know, check out his blog and, you know, check out some of the stories that he's got on there. They're, they're really, really interesting. Thanks again for coming on to the show, and uh, I really look forward to seeing your new title. All right, well, thank you. 
and we're back. <laughs> so it's uh, Rob and Chris back, uh, in case you guys forgot from about 15 minutes ago. Hi. And uh, hi, we're back. We're waiting for you, waiting patiently. All right, so <laughs> let's move on here with uh, uh interesting discussion, hopefully, that we've got. We're, um, you know, I was kind of wondering about stuff that Chris and I could talk about since, you know, we've both got, you know, quite a bit of experience in in this, uh, I guess I would call it like a secondary hobby for me of podcasting. And, you know, Chris does kind of like it all where he's got his blog and he's got his podcast. And the thing that I thought would be kind of interesting to talk about is you know, kind of like why we do the things that we do, you know, outside of the hobby here. All right. So to kind of, you know, start this thing off, uh, let me ask Chris, uh, you know, how exactly did you start you know, doing the the blog and, and so forth, and like, what were your motivations for that? I I think it's it's a number of things. Uh, like I said, when I first started my game group, which, um, I mean, I really have to say I'm in like the the prime gaming time of my life. I, I've done a lot of gaming. I've always been a gamer since I was like nine years old. Um, but to have a regular group that I can go to and and really just encounter games and have people that that we've kind of learned together more about this hobby. I mean, it's just, I, I'm really in a great place in my life as far as that goes. Um, and so the very first thing I did, as I mentioned at the top of the show, actually was a series of geek lists where I would just kind of go through and, and, and go over what we had played and stuff like that. Okay. And maybe that was sort of the beginning of the itch a little bit, um, that and just participating in board game geek and all. Um, but I think when I finally decided to go ahead and, and, and try to find, um, you know, a place where I could call my own to set up my blog. Uh, it was just that I felt like I had something to say. You know, I, I wanted to have a voice right. in the hobby. Um, I wanted to have a place where people could come and, and they would know me a little bit and they would know the kind of games that I liked. And um, and that I, you know, again, I felt like I had a little something to offer there. That's probably the the first right. nugget of, of, the, of the thing that made me go. Yeah, for me... It all started, at least this whole podcasting business, it all started way back when, oh man, I don't even know how many years ago it was, probably like 2008 or so, where I got together with my friend Mark and we started uh, this Xbox Life, which is actually, uh, it's kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes from a prior show that he did called uh, Xbox Podcast. And that kind of fell apart when their media company kind of went south. So I was talking to Mark, you know, about, hey, you know, why don't we just do our own? You know, we don't need the media company. And we got the original hosts of the show. So there's four of us together. And uh, we're now on, well, like, I think we're going to be doing episode 227 tonight. Wow. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a regular show that we do. Um, we record every Sunday night. And it was interesting where the the topics that we talked about really weren't, as important as kind of like just four guys getting together and kind of BSing. I mean, that's the way that I saw it. Cause you know, some would talk about news and stuff. And you know, we originally tried that and uh, you know, the, the show evolved you know, kind of similar to what uh, you know, we've done for this show here where it's just more interesting to hear people gabbing, you know, just talking. Cause you know, you go to your game group and you hear people talking about stuff, and that's interesting. I mean, it's always kind of like I would just be enthralled, like you know, to hear people's opinions about the games. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Where you know, you, you get so and so who loves this, and it's like you know, well, why do you like that? You know, that's more interesting to me sometimes than you know exactly how the games played. Yeah. So yeah, and I think that um, the other neat thing about the whole you know 
blogging and, and podcasting thing is there are so many different perspectives. Absolutely. Um, and, and some people do one, one kind of thing really well. You know, my thing tends to be, cause, cause I tend to do things alone for the most part, um, you know, that I am, I have an idea or how I have something, maybe I've heard another podcast or another blog. That's actually kind of the thing that prompted me actually to start was that I was listening to, um, uh, the metagamers, which was, if, you, if you've never heard the metagamers, um, it was uh, a relatively early board game podcast and, and they were one of the first ones that really got into, again, metagame sort of topics where they're talking more about the hobby than they are talking about just games and doing reviews. And they just would get me thinking and I would have to blog about it. You know, I could have written, I could have written comments on their, on their, um, their site or something. And I did to, to some extent, but I also wanted to add my own take to it. And, and so that's kind of, you know, whether you a little manifesto or a little, um, uh, essay or whatever, uh, that's kind of how I got started. And then I continued doing kind of the, the game reports and, and then some reviews as well. And just to kind of carve that out, because again, I think just like we have different approaches to blogging and podcasting, a lot of times it sort of goes into, you know, why do we play these games that we play? Right. A lot of people do it for the social interaction, just to be with people because you can, you know, rather than, you know, no offense to video games, certainly, but rather than being in a room sort of staring at a TV screen playing a game, you know, you're there across the table and you're interacting with people. Absolutely. And, and so that definitely comes across in some of those podcasts that are more about just us talking and having fun together. Whereas mine, I, the reason I play games for the most part is because I really love games. I love the systems that are in games. I love to see how games handle things. Um, I love to really get to the nuts and bolts of how they handle a problem or present a problem, that right. kind of thing. And so that's sort of my approach to blogging and podcasting as well, is that I want to go a little bit deeper and to try to figure these things out or see what's there, maybe that you wouldn't get on the surface sometimes. So that's uh, just to kind of have that and be able to express it. Just, I can't stop myself maybe sometimes. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, for the podcasts, I think that you and I kind of have a, you know, a, a common inspiration for our shows. And that was, uh, Mark Johnson. Absolutely. You know, with his, uh, with his podcast, because, you know, that was probably the show that, you know, once I found out about it, I went back and I listened to all the episodes. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if I went backwards or forwards, <laughs> but regardless, I, I listened to all, and I think he's just, I think he's at 133 episodes now. Yeah, yeah, and I think what's really cool is that he's actually finding more and more time to get back into it. So, you know, for a, for a few years there, it was very, very spotty, and, and I'm really yeah, glad yeah. that he is able to, um, you know, fit more of it back into his life. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was one of the, I think it was the second board game podcast out there, and he's now the longest-running one, certainly. Um, and just his approach to... You know, he talks about games he's played and stuff, but then he also likes to have these topics and he'll bring in guests and he'll yes. get a little bit deeper. And, 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 uh, he also doesn't edit very much. So I very much, uh, follow his, uh, his advice there just to go ahead and, and get it out, right? Don't worry quite so much about exactly how it sounds. Um, make it, put as much into it as you want. You know, if you want to sound professional, if you want to sound like a, a real radio podcast, uh, radio broadcast rather, um, go for it, but you don't have to do that to podcast. Um, you can turn on the mic, you can record, you know, put it together and release it to the world as well. And so that sort of no frills idea is something I've tried to carry on, um, mainly oh, so I don't kill myself with, with time pressures and stuff. And, and I can tell you that, you know, editing these podcasts, it, it can take several times longer sometimes than 
than actually doing the show. Because <laughs> we used to do that on TXL where, you know, we would do the recording. It would be an hour and a half. And then you're spending three, four, five hours editing the show. So, like recently, actually not recently, a couple of years ago, we switched our format. And basically, whatever we record, you know, whatever the Skype problems are or not, we just tag on the intro and the outro, and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you get it all. You get the flubs. You get everything. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's especially – I mean, we all like to hear things that sound good, right? I mean, and I recently I've invested in a new mic, and I even have this fancy little – sounds uh, good thing that I'm trying here to, to try to limit noise and all, but you know, I don't have a lot of extra money and this is a sub hobby of my main hobby. So it's not something I'm going to kill myself doing. Um, and, and probably for me, even more than money, even though I'm certainly not a rich person by any stretch of the imagination, but time is, is what most of us have the most limited resource of. And with my two little ones, you know, uh, any oh, little yeah. opportunity I have, um, I want to make it count. And so the content and getting it out to the world is a lot more important to me than having it sound perfect or editing out the ums that I very frequently insert into my regular vocabulary here. But. Yes. I'm guilty of that too, with the ahs and the ums and who knows what else. <laughs> what is your uh, motivation for, for keeping on doing all this stuff? You know, because uh, is it like the feedback that you get from people? I, I think... I mean, I love feedback and I beg for feedback and, and whenever you write an article or have a podcast or something that, that seems to kind of catch people's imagination and you get, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 uh, responses to it, um, that's really awesome, right? It is. But at yeah. the same time, if that's the only thing you're looking for, um, you're going you're gonna to run out of steam really, really quickly because there's many times that I'll go two or three weeks and nothing gets a comment. It's like, I'm just putting it out to the universe and wonder if anybody's paying any attention at all. And who knows, maybe they're not for a while, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's gotta come from, I think something that's more, um, internal than, than looking for that kind of positive reinforcement from, from people or negative for that matter, you know, people arguing mm-hmm. with you, but if it's just about getting people to notice you and, and talk back and give you feedback, I don't know that you're going to stick around very long or, or probably be around long enough to get the feedback you're looking for anyway. Oh, yeah. One thing that we did quite a bit with uh, TXL is we would get, like, audio commentary from people. Mm-hmm. And th- that's been kind of a struggle on the board game side. You know, speaking uh, is is something that they don't really care for. I don't know if it's just that a lot of the gamers tend to be more introverts mm-hmm. or whatnot than in other hobbies. But, uh, you know, that's one thing that I've definitely noticed, you know, between the, between the two. Of course, I guess, I mean, in video games, they probably are used to having a headset on and talking to people Absolutely. electronically more than, um, than board gamers would just because of the, the nature of the hobbies themselves. But, but then again, you know, how many IT professionals are in board games and stuff, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. it, it is kind of interesting. Maybe just it's, you know, People, the reason we do this this hobby, um, that we have these you know cardboard and wood games that we play with so much, is because we want to get away from the computer some, and it's hard then to fit that in. And, and and I think we're all just busy too. I think part of what attracts people to the board game hobby is that it's not as all encompassing maybe time wise as some other things that maybe we used to do when we were younger. Um, you know, role-playing or some video game kind of, you know, how in-depth and how many hours you have to spend doing some of those things. Um, so we just have, maybe have just less time to give feedback and, and to record things too. So, And an- another thing about the things that we do, 
you know, what these shows is that, you know, a lot of this stuff is done in free time or whatnot, or I used to do a lot of uh, editing on the train when I would take it uh, into work. And it's something that you really have to love to do because we don't get paid for it. <laughs> there, There is no... Uh, I don't know. It's just some people kind of think it's like, oh, you know, you're a podcaster or a blogger or whatever. You know, you just, you know, uh, well, let me ask you this, Chris. Uh, you know, do you get like ten UPS packages a day <laughs> on your doorstep? <laughs> it's just like you know, they 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 should just have a substation right here at my house. Now, I, I mean, That's I do right. I do get a few <laughs> review copies, and and I'm I'm absolutely thrilled when I do because usually what that means is that I'm going to encounter a game that probably for money reasons more than anything. Uh, that I wouldn't have gotten to encounter before, you know, so I, I definitely sure. enjoy that. Um, I think some blogs and podcasts are a little bit more aggressive about monetizing it, you know, whether it's advertising or sponsors or whatever. Um, I haven't ever done a whole lot of that. I mean, I've, I'm not opposed to it, but I've also not sought it out. Um, and so even if I am getting a few free games, I'm also paying, you know, to, uh, for the registration on my website and for, you know, the hosting fees and all that kind of thing. So I, I'm certainly not making any money from doing this. Oh, um, exactly. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the free games, if anything, is more just a, um, a nice little nod to the fact that maybe I am having an impact uh, enough to, you know, have a voice that people are willing to hear. Um, and, you know, so I get to play some of those and, and, and review them. But by far and large, you know, the the bulk of the games that I play and talk about are games that I have bought or have been given to me by family and friends rather than by game companies or something. So, oh, absolutely. And, you know, for people that are looking into getting into, you know, podcasting or, or whatnot, if that's your sole motivation, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Sorely disappointed. And chances are the games that will be willing to be sent to you are games you probably don't want to play. <laughs> yeah, I've, I mean, I've had that too, where people are just looking for anybody to talk about their game. There's probably a reason for that. You know, uh, To get on the lists for like the, the, the mainline publishers is a lot more difficult. You have to really have something to, to prove your worth almost to them. So. Oh, absolutely. So one thing too is, you know, I've, I've heard this, uh, on other shows where once you get a copy of a game, you're more apt to actually speak kindly of it. And, uh, you know, I guess that's one thing that you might run into, you know, just cause you know, it's kind of like, I don't say it's payola <laughs> yeah, yeah. of sorts. Well, but, I, I, uh, it's only natural. But, I think that if a company has been nice to you and given you this opportunity to play this game, um, it, it might make you biased a little bit towards enjoying the game or liking it or being more kind to the review. Uh, I, I think that if you don't acknowledge that, um, then I think you're probably being dishonest to some extent. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I mean, why would you purposefully prostitute yourself to say, you know, good things about a game you genuinely didn't like? Um, and I just don't think that happens. Um, if anything, probably you'll be quiet about a game rather than say untrue things about it. So, um, yeah, I, I, to me, that's just a, a little bit of a, a silly argument that people tend to throw yeah. around. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, some places have, I think about the D6 generation, you know, th they have made a point about every time they review something, they give it away. So they don't keep any of the free games that they have. Um, and, you know, I, I keep the games that I get if I like them anyway, if I don't, I'll probably trade right. them and get something else for them for that matter. But right. you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Um, because again, this is a hobby of my hobby. Um, I'm already pouring untold amounts of time and certainly even money into it that, um, you know, if I get a little something out of it every so often, 
uh, it's not the main reason I do it, but you know, I'm not going to feel bad about that. I'm not going to let someone make me feel guilty because I got a review game or something like that either. So, and I know in the past, you know, kind of listening to the show where I talk about the games, I tend to be very positive about a lot of the games that I talk about. And a lot of that is because I talk about the games that I like, Mm -hmm. you know, the games that I'm interested in and the games that I want to, you know, talk to other people about and, you know, let them know if there's a game that I really, really don't like, I'm not going to waste, you know, 10 minutes of my showtime on it. You know, chances are, unless it was something that kind of stands out and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just want to let people know, because uh, I talked about uh, Spellbound, uh, the uh, Fragor mm-hmm. Games game. Yes, yes. And I talked about that one, and I didn't care for it at all. And I just talked about it solely, you know, by the fact that, you know, it's an expensive game, and it kind of stood out amongst the others, and there's a lot of people that enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to make mention of that. But the majority of the games, like if there's a game that's total junk, I, I, I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah, I think, again, that's one reason that I wanted to start the podcast, because for me, it's easier to talk about games than it is to write about them. And and I'm probably going to be a lot more likely to talk about a game that I don't like, that I would give a negative review to, than to spend the hours I usually put into writing a formal written review of a game. Um, Again, not that all my written reviews are are fully positive, but, um, but, you know to spend five or 10 minutes talking about a game I didn't like is probably more likely than, than the other, the alternative. But then again, going back just into that positivity thing, I mean, the, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm in the hobby is that I like games. I mean, I like yes. most games that I play and even games that I dislike, I usually can see value in them and I can find some level of enjoyment. So, you know, rarely do I give a game lower than a, you know, six, maybe a five on, on the board game geek scale. Anyway, that's what I tend to use. Right. Um, because most games these days are pretty darn good, even if they don't float your boat exactly, or they don't—they have something that you would, you know, um, turn you would turn you off just a little bit about it. In general, the game is pretty well built because you know we've come a long way in the board gaming hobby. Oh, absolutely. Whereas you know, a couple of years ago, you might have had just that one-person company crank out a game, and you know, you can find a lot of faults with it. Nowadays, you know, with uh, how some of these companies are run, how, how these publishing houses are run. You know, they will take a game and they will develop the heck out of it and, you know, kind of turn the game from something plain into, I don't say a shiny penny, but, <laughs> you know, they'll they'll make at least something good in the game. Yeah, and I think even, because obviously that's like one of the big complaints about Kickstarter now is that you can have Billy Bob and his game that he designed in his basement, um, you know, throw it up on Kickstarter. But I'd say even with that... Um, most of the ones that are going to be successful, most of the ones that are actually, you know, going to, going to have enough notoriety and people are going to, you know, read the rules and realize there's a real game there. I think there's a level of, of knowledge about the way to develop a game and, um, and, and enough general knowledge of, of the things that are, that happen in modern games these days. Um, that if, if you're interested enough to really go to that extent, to put it on Kickstarter, chances are even just with internal playtesting, you're going to do a lot more than Billy Bob at his garage, you know, 10 years ago would have been doing. Absolutely. So, we're kind of going on a tangent from our topic here, but you know, <laughs> it's all, okay. it's all sort of related, right? I mean, we're, we're absolutely just, uh, talking. About <laughs> I think one point I did wanted to make about, you know, yeah. why we, why I do this is the fact that, um, again, for most of my gaming career, I had very little chances to actually play games, whether it was in high school, you know, maybe 
once a month we would get together to actually play the game. Um, even when I was playing collectible card games and things like that, um, once I was married or you know out of college and all. So for for most of my time in the hobby, you know, regardless of kind of of what the setting was, whether it was a collectible card game or you know probably most of my gaming career has been role playing games. Um, I had very little chance to actually play. So the way that I would engage with the hobby was to, you know, as the dungeon master, the game master, I would be designing, writing the, the adventure. Um, and for collectible games, probably the bulk of my time would be, you know, reading online, researching, designing decks and things like that. And so I'm very used to uh, engaging with my hobby through these sort of sub hobby routes rather than necessarily always from playing games. Um, and so, I mean, there's probably people definitely in my game group just because of, um, my family commitments that play a lot more games than I actually get to play. And so this is just another way for me to, you know, whether it's over lunch at work, you know, writing an article or finding time at night, um, it keeps me thinking about the hobby. It keeps me engaged with the hobby and, and finding some little way um, to feel like I'm doing it even when I'm not doing it. Um, and I think that's, again, just from my background, that's something that's always been a part of my life. And I think this is just a natural extension of that a little bit yeah i mean you bring up a very good point with that playing games is you know definitely a huge part of this hobby but you know when we spend that time on bgg reading the posts and watching videos you know i subscribe to spielbox that's another thing you know mm -hmm. so i read the magazine you know I, I spend the time to introduce my wife uh, wendy and my son to the games that's all an extension of of this hobby and the podcast and your blog is exactly that same thing. It's just a, another way to continue or to, you know, to spread out the information from this hobby of ours. It's yeah. a very good point. We tend to call it lonely fun. <laughs> that, lonely fun. <laughs> that, that if, um, you know, for the person who wants to be the game master in a role-playing game, if you don't find enjoyment, if you don't find fun doing the work of building the world and designing the adventure – then you're not going to last long as a game master, right? Because you've got to put in that true. work um, to true. some extent, you know, depending on the game, before you can really lead a group and, and be the game master for it. And I think it's the kind of the same thing here, that if I didn't enjoy doing what I do, writing and talking about games, then I wouldn't do it. Um, and even, you know, we're talking about Board Game Geek, you know, I think at one point I made a very conscious decision that I would spend less time reading and posting comments and things like that on BGG because I wanted to, to concentrate more effort on the blog and now, of course, the podcast. And so it's, you know, you're going to spend that time a lot of times anyway. I, I can only imagine as popular as all these video casts are out there, um, right. and all of them are like 20 minutes long. Where do people find the time to watch all of these, you know, video casts about uh, every unboxing of every game ever? Um, that's the time that I spend writing and thinking and podcasting, I guess. So, cause you know, even doing these shows, it takes a considerable amount of preparation, mm -hmm. you know, just to gather like all the different things that you want to talk about. And I know oftentimes I would do like show notes or, or game notes and, you know, I'll spend 15 minutes talking about a game and you spend an hour just pulling information for it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's just, and if you game, don't do so. that, then I mean, I've scrapped whole segments of my show before, because when I listened back to them, I realized I just did not have my thoughts organized at all. And I was just rambling for 45 minutes or something like that. Um, <laughs> and that's okay sometimes. It, it is. Sometimes you have kind of a, a moment of brilliance in there. But more often than not, you tend to repeat yourself and, and kind of talk around things a lot. 
And so I, then, then I go back and I say, okay, I really need to write out some notes and decide what right. I want to say about this game or about the subject before I get back into it. And again, that's fun for me, again, because the whole point is for me to investigate, to explore games. Oops, goodness. Um, that's the, the title of my podcast, obviously. Absolutely, um, yeah. And, and if I didn't enjoy exploring games by myself even, um, then I wouldn't be doing it. So, Okay, so there you have it, folks. That's a little bit of insight on uh, why we do the things that we do uh, outside of uh, board gaming, including the, the podcasting, the blogging, and so forth. I uh, you know, hope you guys uh, found that a little bit uh, intriguing. And uh, who knows, you know, might talk about that stuff in future shows too. So uh, the last segment that we've got here is is uh, Game Lust. That's where we talk about some of the games that we're looking forward to, you know, ones that might be out already but not here in the U.S. or ones that are still uh, kind of in the works. So, um, you know, one that I'm really looking forward to is there's a Seasons expansion that's coming out. Uh, they kind of teased a little bit of information on this game. Uh, recently, where they showed some of the card art that's going to be coming out. This thing's going to be coming out uh, in the summer, so we're still, what, about four or five months away from when it's going to be released. They're going to have all new cards, and also there's going to be some uh, tokens that are little circles that go in those holes for the boards. So it's not Which, just for the die? You don't just yeah, the die. exactly. <laughs> it was interesting that they kind of left that in the first game. But uh, uh, one interesting note is that uh, when we were at Gen Con, we were talking to uh, one of the Asmodee guys, and he had mentioned that um, that a expansion was kind of in the works already, but they didn't know how well Seasons would do, because they kind of thought that it wasn't going to be a huge hit. Uh, well, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> they They didn't know how well it was going to be received. The expansion was kind of in the wings, but I'm really excited to see the expansion, because this is a, a really interesting game. You know, if you don't have it, check it out in Board Game Arena, you know, at least to get a little bit of flavor. And if you uh, play with some really kind of uh, jerky people, I'm sorry. That was my last experience <laughs> that made it uh, less than pleasant. But uh, the game itself is really a lot of fun. It's got some interesting twists to it. So I'm really looking forward to the uh, Seasons expansion coming out later on this year. How about you, Chris? Uh, uh, okay, one of them, of course, I'm a, I'm a big fan of co-op games, and uh, Robinson yes. Crusoe has gotten oh, yeah. a, a lot of good press, um, uh, again, coming out of SNL last year, but uh, I think just the idea that it's very thematic, that you have these different scenarios, and that it's extremely difficult, um, all those things make me very interested in, in, in playing. Um, I think the length does scare me a little bit as well, just uh, the fact that it's not going to be a quick game, and... Um, I think short games that are difficult, you know, tend to be a little more tolerable than if you had like a two hour game and you still could never win. That might get a little frustrating, but um, it has enough of those elements that excite me that I'm really looking forward to it. It's probably at the top of my wish list right now. So, okay. Robinson Crusade. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to that one and I can't wait uh, for that one to hit. I think it's it's even like next month or something that it's supposed to hit. Um, yeah, Z Man, I think, I think maybe or someone. <laughs> yes, yeah, Z Man. Uh, I'm and, definitely looking forward to that. Maybe I should ask about that. <laughs> yeah, and I follow the Portal guys on Twitter, so I get to see all of the stuff about them testing and mm -hmm. you know doing uh, scenarios for it. So that's kind of an extra annoying thing because it's like you know here's this game I, I want to check it out. I hear all these cool things, but I can't play yet. Mm -hmm. I have to wait. Okay, uh, another one that I'm kind of interested in is uh, Skyline. So this is a game that came with uh, Ground Floor from Tasty Minstrel. And uh, it's a little dice game. And again, 
I, I, I love dice. Sorry for, you know, everybody out there that doesn't care for luck games. But uh, it's kind of an interesting little game where you have a ton of dice. They have like little building symbols, like ground floor, like a middle floor, and I think they call them penthouses or top floor. And you roll these dice and you basically build buildings with them. And, uh, you know, depending on the height and the color, there's, you know, different points for them. And uh, it just looks like... It's a, a fun little game uh, with some really cool components to it. It's it's fairly small, so it's portable, which makes it lunch playable for me, possibly, or in, uh, e- a lot easier to take to get uh, like family gatherings or whatnot. But uh, Skyline is right now only with ground floor, but I guess it's going to be coming out in its own, uh, I guess, own box uh, sometime soon. Yeah, I think the next games uh, we could probably put all together, really, and that's just the, the all the stuff on Feld games that have come out. I think both of us are pretty big uh, Feld fanboys. Um, Absolutely. As far as that goes. Yes. Um, and I really, I'm not a huge anticipation kind of guy, so I haven't really got in and read rules and, and got into details, but anything from Stefan Feld I'm interested in. So Rialto, yes. Bora Bora, and Bruja, is that right? Uh, they, it looks like Bruga, Bruga I mean, <laughs> but yeah. they, I've heard it say, uh, been said as Bruges. Bruges, yeah. Um, all three of those just interest me because um, pretty much everything he's done, I, I've been extremely interested in, and and I'm definitely on board with the uh, Aaliyah Big Box series right now too for for Bora Bora and all. But um, definitely to play, probably to own, I, I want to get into all three of those. Have, have you heard much detail? Have you investigated a lot of? specifics about any of those there's not a whole lot of information out about them yet you know some of them will have like the box art and so forth uh board game geek posted a bunch of videos you know how uh, eric martin goes around and he does his uh you know like trade show videos Mm -hmm. and i think within the past three days two three days they've got all of these on video from uh, what nuremberg oh yeah 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 so um you know, I, I don't think that those videos are very good representations in terms of like buy or not, just because they don't go into the detail that we always like to hear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, trade shows aren't necessarily the best for that just because of people being rushed and stuff. But anyway, you can check out the videos and at least see, you know, what the games look like. There was one of them. I think it was, um, I don't think it was, no, so Rialto. It might have been Rialto where they actually had components from the village used for it. So it's, it's still that much of an early game. Wow. You know, the, the board the board and the box were finalized. The components were not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it just amazes me. How does he get three games out? I, I mean, <laughs> that's that's a very good question. Um, but I, I think just the perspective he brings, some of the, some of the things that he likes to, to stick into games, the um, that tension, that you know, sort of the... Uh, that mounting issue that you have to deal with or it's going to overwhelm you sort of um, th- that kind of pressure. Uh, I really enjoy that in games. And, um, and he does that probably about as, about as good as anybody these days, I'd say. We'll, we'll see how that all fits in. Again, like I said, I've, I've done very little actual research um, as I'm just kind of looking here. <laughs> more ganky. I need to know oh, more, yeah. but anything from him, I'm definitely going to play and, and probably pick up if, if nobody else gets it. So. Yeah, they've got the instructions, I think, for Bora Bora. So the manual for Bora Bora is out. The others, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, definitely check out the videos if you're interested. And and I know there's three designers that I'm a huge fan of, and he's one of them, along with Philip DuBerry and uh, Friedemann Friesa. Mm -hmm. 
So those are some of my favorites there. But uh, yeah, also looking forward to those, and I can't wait to see them. And then I think uh, we got one more. Pandemic? Pandemic in the lab, in the lab. is, is the, uh, the new expansion. I kind of mentioned this earlier, like I said, but uh, just from the details, they haven't said a lot yet about it, but it's going to involve some other separate board where you can go to continue somehow or another uh, researching the cures on this separate little lab board. Um, I think, if nothing else, the strength of the um, uh, On the Brink expansion and just all that it offered and, and the different ways to kind of add and you know a little bit of elements into the game... Um, if this is anything like On the Brink, then it's going to be another fantastic one. The worry is always that they're going to do something that then breaks the game or makes it too much or changes the nature of the right. game. But, um, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to pick it up, whatever it ends up looking like, and, uh, and, and hope that it's a real nice addition to, to Pandemic. So uh, that's all the games that we had for the Game Lust section uh, this week. And I believe that's it for the show. Believe it or not, uh, what are we, like two hours later? <laughs> we went we way long. We, we went are, way yes. long. I don't, I don't know if I'll break this one up into two shows or not, just for uh, you know, to make it uh, a little more listenable, too. So, uh, hey, hey, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. And, uh, you know, i got to admit, I've been a longtime fan of yours, so it's an extra special treat for me to have you on, and I hope it's a treat for our listeners, too. Rob, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure you know, I've listened to podcasts for a long time, but I think I knew within uh, the first couple episodes that this board game life was going to be one that uh, that really was one of my top favorites. And, and just the chance to awesome. be here is really exciting to me as well. So thanks. Thanks a lot. Oh, excellent. All right. You know, <laughs> this is where we do the bro hug. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna cry uh, with my yeah. The Skype bro hug. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that you know, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, this the show is something that, uh, you know, I'm ch- still trying to evolve now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, especially since uh, it's it's more of a, a solo show right now. <laughs> I've still got some ideas that I'd like to try out, and you know, we'll we'll see where that goes. But uh, again, hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, where can our listeners find out more information about you in case they haven't uh, checked you out already? All right, um, my my main blog site is gamerchris.com, G-A-M-E-R-C-H-R-I-S, just like it sounds. dot com. Um, you can also find the Exploring Games podcast there or at iTunes. Um, I'm also Guild1350 at BoardGameGeek. Um, and on Twitter, I am at Kilroy underscore Locke, which doesn't make any sense at all other than the fact that was like one of my first D&D characters. But K-I-L-R-O-Y underscore Locke, L-O-C-K-E. Well, that's another uh, interesting little bit of tidbit about you there. <laughs> okay, then. For this board game life, you know, make sure to check out our website. Uh, you can uh, send us an email at contact at thisboardgamelife.com, or you can send it to rob at thisboardgamelife.com. They go to the same place. Uh, we have our BGG Guild out there where uh, you will find this episode amongst uh, all of the others. And then uh, you can find us on Twitter, uh, tboardgamelife is the uh, handle or Twitter name or whatever you want to call it. This wouldn't fit, so it's just the letter T, Board Game Life. <laughs> Again, uh, I'm Rob. I'm Chris. And, uh, you know, thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. And, hey, Chris, thanks again for being on the show. It was awesome. <laughs>